As a wildfire destroys part of the island of Maui and leaves dozens of people dead, climate scientists in Hawaii stress the role climate change is playing in the devastation. It's Thursday, August 10th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Lynn Jolliker, in for Lisa Mullins. Film and television workers around the country are taking a hit in the wake of the writers and actors strike in Hollywood. It's devastating to this industry because it trickles down. The amount of money lost is tremendous. Still, many of these impacted workers support the strikes. Plus, Iran moves some U.S. citizens from prison to house arrest. Could it be a step toward their freedom in a prisoner swap? And as the portion of the prison population that's over 55 grows, so do costs. We'll tell you about new efforts to address advanced medical needs. The news is first. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. Federal prosecutors are asking for a trial date in early January 2024 in their case against former President Donald Trump on charges that he sought to overturn his 2020 election laws. NPR's Carrie Johnson reports. A trial date in January 2024 would come three years after the attempt to disrupt the peaceful transfer of power in Washington. More than 1,000 people have faced criminal charges for their role in the riot at the Capitol. Now, former President Trump is fighting an indictment that accuses him of conspiring to defraud the U.S. and conspiring to obstruct the certification in Congress. Prosecutor Molly Gaston says the DOJ case could take four to six weeks. She says a speedy jury trial is best for the American people. Trump will have several days to respond to the proposal. So far, his lawyers have signaled they want to delay the case until after the next presidential election, where Trump's the frontrunner for the GOP nomination. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. Four U.S. citizens have been moved from Iran's notorious Evin prison to house arrest as the U.S. and Iran finalize a deal to bring them home. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. U.S. officials call it an encouraging step, but say the five Americans should never have been detained in the first place. The White House has named three of them, Siamak Namazi, Murad Tabaz, and Imad Shargi, but says two others wish to remain private. One, a woman, had already been shifted to house arrest. A National Security Council spokesperson says negotiations for their eventual release remain ongoing and are, quote, delicate. Iran has been seeking access to about $6 billion of its oil revenue stuck in South Korea. The U.S. is also likely to release some Iranian prisoners in exchange for the five Americans. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. In Ecuador, there is a state of emergency today after one of the country's leading presidential candidates was assassinated, leaving a political rally. As Jorge Valencia reports, troops have been deployed ahead of the presidential election later this month. The candidate, Fernando Villavicencio, had publicly said he received death threats. He said it was in response to a promise to root out corruption. We're going to talk about the political mafia that other candidates don't want to talk about, Villavicencio recently told a local radio station. Late Wednesday local time, he was fatally shot in the capital of Quito. Hours later, outgoing President Guillermo Lasso ordered the military onto the country's streets. No vamos a retroceder. We won't back down to criminals, Lasso said in an address. The Ecuadorian election will go on as scheduled August 20th. For NPR News, I'm Jorge Valencia. Evacuations continue on the Hawaiian island of Maui, where at least 36 people have died in wildfires that have caused extensive devastation. Wall Street at the close, the Dow up 52, the Nasdaq up 15. This is NPR. 
And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. A former curator at the Worcester Art Museum is suing her supervisor and the museum's director for alleged discrimination and offensive behavior. Rachel Parikh claims she was mocked and ridiculed for being a brown-skinned South Asian woman. I was constantly on edge. I was just waiting for a comment to be made or something to happen. And, and, and you're constantly on overdrive, so to speak. Parikh resigned from her job at the museum last fall. In a statement, a spokesperson said the museum remains committed to providing a workplace where everyone is treated with dignity and respect. The mayor of Quincy is vowing to appeal the state's decision to give Boston a license to rebuild the Long Island Bridge. Mayor Tom Koch says traffic that will have to go through Quincy's Squantum neighborhood will have a negative environmental impact on residents. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu says with the state's latest approval, the city can move forward on rebuilding a campus on Long Island and Boston Harbor to help people who are dealing with addiction and homelessness. She says it can be done in four years. We can't waste any more time in this project. It is about creating an island of opportunity that will connect people to the lives and uh, community and, and pathways that they deserve. The city still has to obtain two federal permits. The old bridge was unsafe and was demolished eight years ago. The loss of the campus has put a strain on Boston's ability to help people with substance use disorder. The chairwoman of the state's Cannabis Control Commission is apologizing for any confusion she may have caused at the body's last meeting. Last month, when Shannon O'Brien unexpectedly announced that the agency's executive director, Sean Collins, was leaving, she went on to say that the agency was in crisis. At today's meeting, a commission spokesperson said Collins has not resigned. He is temporarily out of the office. When sports, the Patriots kick off their preseason as they host the Houston Texans tonight. It's the only preseason game at Gillette Stadium. And the Red Sox will close out their four-game series with Kansas City. We'll have showers and thunderstorms tonight, maybe some gusty winds and heavy rain. It'll be in the upper 60s. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Much of Lahaina, Maui, is in ruins. My business, my home, my inventory, everything I own is gone. I'm lucky enough that my dog is alive, I'm alive. I have a vehicle um, and I have a lot of friends accounted for with me, but I have a lot of friends who aren't accounted for. That's Cole Millington. He owns Honolulu Hot Sauce Company, which is based in Lahaina. He says everything happened so fast for him. I just looked out my window and I saw a huge black plume of smoke pretty close to our house. And within 15 minutes, we were sprinting into our cars, peeling out of the driveway, and the road was on fire. At least three dozen people have died. Hundreds of buildings have been destroyed. Many are still having trouble reaching their loved ones. It's very, um, obviously, traumatic to see such a historic town, just to see it scorched and gray and still burning and the smoke, and it was very apocalyptic. That's Dr. Reza Donish. He's been driving around in a medical van, treating people who are still in Lahaina. And while he's been treating them, they have been sharing stories of survival. One guy that rescued himself said he felt the walls being hot and that he knew not to open his front door. So he propelled down three stories with a rope he had and, and just started running to the ocean. 
Dr. Donish says that patient is not the only one who sought refuge in the ocean. This other lady were treating all her cuts and all her injuries told me she spent eight hours in the water. She just ran to the ocean. Um, and she had to go like hold on to a pillar and she was telling me how her friend had a smoke inhalation and was having a hard time and, and her friend couldn't survive. And just to hear that story to kind of like kind of some kind of like Titanic like story to just watch someone in the water and it's your friend die. Um, her pet died and she had nothing. And we were treating her and she was keeping her spirits up but to just realize that happened right here a few miles from where we live. just seems unfair. The devastation from the fires has been swift and vast. Satellite images of Lahaina taken yesterday show large swaths of Maui that have been completely leveled. These wildfires are already raising questions about what role climate change may be playing. Questions we're going to put now to Giuseppe Torri. He's a professor of atmospheric sciences at the University of Hawaii. We have reached him in Honolulu. Professor, welcome. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So just yesterday, I was interviewing someone live from Hawaii on this program And six people were confirmed dead. Overnight, that number jumped. The death toll is now in the dozens. There's also devastation that is looking much worse than it was just 24 hours ago. So start there. How did this fire get so big, so deadly, so fast? There are two components to this. The first one is that we are in a dry season in Hawaii. It hasn't rained a lot. Um, Summers are typically dry. And we are in a period uh, of El Nino, meaning that the Pacific Ocean is warmer. And uh, warmer waters in the Pacific Ocean uh, typically bring drier conditions in Hawaii. Uh, And so these two things summed together caused fairly dry conditions on the islands for the past few weeks. On top of this, we had to the north of the island, there was a pretty strong high pressure system. And to the south of the island, we had a tropical cyclone. Tropical cyclones have low pressures, and so high pressure to the north, uh, low pressure to the south caused great acceleration in the winds. Okay, so you're talking about winds, you're talking about dry conditions. I I mean, I will note it's not just dry this summer, it's been dry for years. Hawaii has been experiencing drought for more than a decade. Was this a case where you had existing conditions in place and then weather patterns that combined in just the wrong way? Um, for a fire like this to be possible. That is correct, yes. Conditions were there and um, and the wind was sort of the trigger. Is this just Maui or are other parts of Hawaii vulnerable in the same way? I would say all of the Hawaiian islands are equally vulnerable. Uh, wildfires in general, are they're not so rare in Hawaii. And so there have been uh, occasions in Maui and, and Hawaii Island in the past but these tend to be pretty limited in spatial extent and certainly not with the same uh, amount of damages that we've seen. Yeah. I mean, the images coming out of Hawaii are, are shocking. Um, are they surprising, knowing everything we know about the environmental conditions you're describing and the atmospheric conditions? No, I, I don't think they're surprising at all. And in, in fact, this was a topic of conversation with uh, friends in the past few days because, you know, we're just saying, well, um, El Nino, uh, (laughs) dry conditions, 
you know, we were expecting tropical cyclones, hurricanes during the season, and we were just talking about the possibility of, of there being wildfires. Certainly, we didn't expect the impact that they had on La Haina. This is the town that's that's basically burnt to the ground, or at least it appears to be from images. Go on. Yeah, this beautiful historic town, uh, completely burned. Um, we didn't expect that, um, that's for sure, but... Um, but it wasn't too surprising that there would be that there would be wildfires. Yeah. Is this climate change? To what extent is that factoring in here? So, I would say there are different components to this. To some degree, this is part of the natural variability of the climate. Uh, we do, however, observe there have been considerable drying over the Hawaiian Islands, particularly on the leeward side. And this is consistent with what um, some of the models project for uh, future climates. Um, And I would also add a third component, which is that climate change doesn't only mean uh, the change due to greenhouse gas concentrations uh, have an increase over the past 150 years. Mm -hmm. Climate change is also due to how we change the environment in which we live. And Hawaii has certainly experienced dramatic changes over the last, I would say, 50 to 100 years in terms of urbanization, in terms of land use and land cover change. Um, a lot of the land has been converted from, you know, just wild land, being converted to agricultural land, uh, to various crops. The way we use the natural resources can have an impact, perhaps not on a global scale, but maybe on a regional enough scale to become important for these uh, for these changes to occur. So what's the number one question on your mind, top thing you're watching for in the coming days? Well, first of all, what is the Pacific Ocean going to do uh, over the next few months? Uh, what is it going to do next year? Uh, are we still going to be in a, in a El Nino year, I guess? And the Pacific Ocean is, uh, is a giant heart uh, for the planet Earth. And what the Pacific Ocean is doing has effects pretty much everywhere. And it's particularly true in Hawaii, which is in the center of this beautiful ocean. Uh, and so the number one question is, how can we better predict the behavior of this part of the globe, which is not as inhabited as other continental areas, but which from the climate point of view is extraordinarily important. And the second question, um, which is not necessarily my uh, my field, is how can we be better prepared in the future? Because you know if this keeps happening and these events keep happening, how can we be um, better prepared moving forward. That is Giuseppe Torre, Professor of Atmospheric Sciences at the University of Hawaii. Professor Torre, thank you. Thank you very much. Hollywood writers have been striking for three months, and last month, the actors joined them. Together, they've been filling up picket lines outside the major studios in Hollywood. But the strikes aren't only having an impact in California. Outside of the state, the industry says it employs more than 1.7 million people and pays $158 billion in wages. NPR's Tilda Wilson talked to some of them. It would be difficult to film a show called Yellowstone anywhere other than the Mountain West. You were right. They're building a city. Everyone's forgotten who runs this valley. Yellowstone's later seasons were filmed in Montana, where film and TV productions paid $121 million in wages last year. After Yellowstone completed production, casting director Tina Buckingham was already hard at work on a prequel for the show called 1923. 
It was set to begin filming in Montana in June until the writer's strike started. She says this and other cancellations have been hard for businesses across the state. It's devastating to this industry because it trickles down all of the food people, the restaurants, the people that would work on the movie, the lumber companies for building sets the wranglers for the horses, and it goes on and on and on. The amount of money lost is tremendous. Still, Buckingham says she stands with the striking writers and actors. I believe in it. The writers and the actors both absolutely need a better cut for projects when they go to streaming. Montana attracts big productions with its scenery, but Georgia draws in even more with tax credits. The Motion Picture Association estimates the film and TV industry brought in $3.5 billion in wages last year in Georgia for productions that included popular shows like Sweet Magnolias and Single Drunk Female. In the beginning, your body's like, don't drink, I want to drink, don't drink, I want to drink. What do I do? Don't drink. No. Brian Smith works as a set dresser in Atlanta. He's in a union, but not one of the ones that's striking. Smith said picketers didn't show up at their productions right at the start of the WGA strike the way they did in Hollywood. We were never really hit with picketers, so a lot of filming continued to happen in Atlanta. But work dried up really quickly as the strike continued into the summer. It's been hard for him. I missed my job. <laughs> it's, it was something that I, I loved doing, so it's hard for me to just be like, oh yeah, I'll go wait tables or I'll go do this. It's like, I don't want to do that. And I don't want to do that at all. But they're striking for people like Jay Adams, who has worked as an actor and stuntman in Michigan for more than a decade. This is about guys like me, who you don't know, but you see me in an episode of a TV show falling down and uh, getting beat up by, by somebody. The people that you don't know the names of, but those are the people that you actually see quite a bit. Adam says he didn't have to find a new side gig when the strike started because he's always needed one anyway. He hopes the strike can help change that. We're so focused on these side hustles and things like that. We want to be able to work our job and be able to train for our job when we're not working and be able to make a good living and be able to take care of our families. But as the strikes continue, it looks like more than a million people across the U.S. working in and around the production industries will have to wait. Tilda Wilson, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, Iran moves several Americans from prison to house arrest. It could be a step toward their eventual freedom in a prisoner swap. That story in about 15 minutes here on All Things Considered. On Wall Street, just some slight gains today. The Dow went up almost 0.2 percent. The S&P inched up 0.03 percent. NASDAQ gained 0.1 percent. In local business news, inflation in greater Boston is lower than it is nationally. The consumer prices released today show a 2.8 percent increase locally compared to 3.2 percent nationwide. Analysts attribute that to falling energy prices here. The U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics reports household energy prices were lower in the Boston area, though gasoline, food and housing prices were up. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Symbiosis Learning Center in Milton, now enrolling for the upcoming year, a nurturing and mindful environment for middle and high school students. SymbiosisLearningCenter.com. 
In sports, the Patriots will kick off against the Houston Texans in the first preseason game tonight at Gillette Stadium. Quarterback Mac Jones and all of the New England starters will not play tonight. ESPN Patriots reporter Mike Reese says it's not unusual for Patriots coach Bill Belichick to start the preseason games with his best players on the sidelines. He's looking ahead to next week when the team travels to Green Bay for joint practices with the Packers as the next opportunity and and the best opportunity to give Mac and the starters a chance to work against top competition. This is the Patriots' only home preseason game. They open the regular season on September 10th against the Eagles. Tonight, rain. Some of it will be heavy, likely some thunderstorms, too. There's a flood watch for much of the area. Things will clear out for a sunny Friday. It's 80 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. It's time now for our science roundup from our friends at NPR's shortwave podcast. Regina Barber and Burley McCoy are here. Hey, y'all. Hey. Hello. All right. So today, I understand you've brought us three science stories that caught your eye. Can you just give me a little preview? Okay. How about shouting into interstellar space? A super sneaky fish. And bigger waves off California because of climate change. Okay, Regina, I can definitely identify with this idea of shouting into space a lot of the time, especially when I'm at home. Let's start there. Yeah, me too. So a couple weeks ago, NASA lost contact with Voyager 2. This is the spacecraft that launched in 1977 and has traveled well beyond our solar system and is still sending back data. And they were worried they'd lost contact for good, but they reconnected to it last week by shouting at it across 12 billion miles or so. Okay, and what exactly do you mean by shouting? Yeah, so NASA periodically sends messages to make sure Voyager 2 is pointing its receiver towards Earth. And a few weeks ago, there was an error in a code that was sent out that resulted in the receiver pointing the wrong way, just two degrees. And that error was kind of like sending an email with the wrong attachment. And because of that slight shift, they lost contact. The team was in emergency mode. But they were eventually able to send another message using the strongest signal they could, which was over twice as powerful as the original message. Linda Spilker, the Voyager mission scientist I talked to, called it shouting at Voyager 2. And it worked. We shouted Voyager, waited a day and a half, and Voyager came back and said, hi, I'm fine. Everything's great. (laughs) Well, that sounds like a relief. But wait, there are two Voyager spacecrafts, right? Yeah. So there's Voyager 1 and Voyager 2. And they were both made to study the planets in our solar system. And Voyager 2 is actually the only spacecraft to study Uranus and Neptune. But since everything was still working after the initial four-year mission, scientists decided to give them a new mission to study interstellar space. Interstellar. Isn't that a Matthew McConaughey film? Yes, but in real life, we're talking about the space beyond our solar system, between star systems, a place we haven't really explored. And that's where the Voyager spacecrafts are now. And this makes them the farthest human-made objects from Earth. 
Also, just in case they encounter intelligent life, Voyager 1 and 2 are carrying golden records, and these golden records have images, music, and greetings from all over the world. Okay, now for our second science story, we are leaving space and we're diving right into the ocean. Burley, tell us about these sneaky fish. Yeah, so this discovery is in trumpet fish, which are these long stick-like fish. And they do this thing called shadowing when they're hunting other fish, which is basically when one fish follows another fish closely. And there was some mystery as to why they would do that. Maybe they do it because it helps them sneak up on their prey, but they could also do it because they encounter less drag when they swim in the shadow of another fish. Researchers didn't really know. Okay, so how did the scientists get to the bottom of it all? So this is the really fun part. First, the researchers made these 3D printed models of trumpet fish and the fish they tend to hide behind called parrotfish. Then the lead researcher spent weeks painting them. He said he felt like Bob Ross and then took them out to a coral reef in the Caribbean where divers had seen this trumpet fish shadowing behavior before. And so two researchers would dive down, find a colony of trumpet fish prey, and then set up two tripods with a nylon line between them. They attached 3D printed trumpet fish and parrot fish to that nylon line, kind of like an underwater clothesline. And then they'd put on this underwater puppet show with the fake fish swimming across the reef and watch how the trumpet fish's prey responded. Okay, so what did the prey do? How did they respond to these decoys when it looked like one fish was hiding behind the other fish? Yeah, so this illusion that the researchers set up with the fake trumpet fish hiding behind the parrot fish, it seemed to trick the prey. The prey didn't dart out of the way as urgently as they did when they encountered the trumpet fish on its own. So it seems these scientists got closer to answering the question of why these fish do this then, right? It seems to help them get closer to their prey while hunting. Yeah, that's what the researchers concluded, which means this is the first time researchers showed that a predator outside of humans can conceal themselves from their prey by hiding behind another animal. And since coral reefs are disappearing, there's less coral to hide behind. So hiding behind other fish could end up being an even more important strategy for trumpet fish in the future. For our third and final story, we are staying in the ocean. The waves along the California coast are getting bigger over time, and that's due to global warming? Yeah, so our NPR colleague Nate Rott wrote about this recently for NPR.org. Apparently, California's winter waves have gotten about a foot taller on average since 1969. And the number of storms that produce waves greater than 13 feet tall have also become more common off California's coast. So this is from a study published last week in the Journal of Geophysical Research Oceans. I mean, when you're talking about a foot taller waves, I'm not the best swimmer. That doesn't sound like good news for me. Maybe if you like to surf, it's a good thing. Yeah, I think for the surfers, it might be a better thing for the rest of us. Uh, Surfers in California earlier this year said they saw the best swell in decades. Yeah, but like Juana said, there are plenty of downsides that come with massive waves like damaged piers, crumbled sea cliffs, flooded coastlines. And when you combine that with rising sea levels, we're talking billions in damage to California's coast within the next few decades. Okay, that's no good. So how did they figure out that California's waves were getting bigger? Peter Bromirsky, the study's author, used seismic records going back to 1931. I mean, I feel like when I hear the word seismic thrown around, I'm usually thinking about earthquakes, not waves. Yep, yep, totally. But it is connected, we swear. So 
basically when waves ricochet off the coast, they send energy back towards the sea. And when that energy hits incoming waves, it pushes energy downward. That creates a seismic signal that can be detected like earthquakes. So Bromirsky was able to use that information to estimate the size of the waves. And this part is actually really cool. So we have data on wave height along the West Coast from buoys, but they've only been measuring this since 1980. So by using this older seismic data, Bromirsky was able to go back further in time to activity patterns back to the 1930s. Okay, and we mentioned earlier that these higher waves off California are linked to global warming. What's the connection? Well, this new study adds to research suggesting storm activity in the northern Pacific Ocean has increased as human activities have caused the world's temperatures to warm. That storm activity is the main source of California's winter swells. Plus, we know that climate change makes storms more powerful and dangerous. It makes storm surge and inland flooding more severe. So even though this study was focused on a specific region, the concern goes way beyond the California coast. That's Burley McCoy and Regina Barber from NPR's science podcast, Shortwave, where you can learn about new discoveries, everyday mysteries, and the science behind the headlines. Regina, Burley, thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Juana. This is NPR News. And thanks for spending part of your afternoon with us here at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes on All Things Considered, Ecuador is under a state of emergency after a presidential candidate was assassinated at a campaign rally just over a week before Election Day. Rain and thunderstorms tonight will have temps in the upper 60s. Looks like a nice Friday, though, sunny with a high in the low 80s. Then mid-80s both days this weekend with lots of sun Saturday, a little less sun on Sunday with a chance of showers and thunderstorms. Then Monday right now looks sunny with a high in the low to mid-80s. It's 79 degrees in Boston under overcast skies. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Prompt, with a mission to help students get into their top-choice colleges. Prompt's one-on-one application and essay coaching is designed to help students write compelling college essays. More at myprompt.com slash NPR. There's no question that African Americans created hip-hop, but Latinos have also played an essential and historic role in the birth and evolution of the art form. 1970. We celebrate 50 years of hip-hop with our friends from Alt-Latino on the next Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WB1. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. In Hawaii, the death toll from wildfires on Maui has climbed to 36 and several fires are still burning on the island. Hawaii authorities are urging visitors there to avoid coming to the historic tourist town, which looks like a wasteland of burned-out homes and businesses. 
Firefighters still battling the blaze, which is the deadliest in the U.S. in five years. President Biden has declared a federal state of emergency. Which will get aid into the hands of the people desperate, desperately needing help now. They've lost, uh, anyone who's lost a loved one whose home has been damaged or destroyed is going to get help immediately. Smoking heaps of rubble lie piled next to the waterfront in Lahaina. The town dates back to the 1700s and was one of the biggest communities on Maui's west side. Former President Donald Trump and his aide, Walt Nada, pleaded not guilty this afternoon to new charges that they withheld and concealed classified documents. But as NPR's Greg Allen tells us, a third man charged, a Mar-a-Lago employee, didn't enter a plea. Carlos de Oliveira is the property manager at Trump's private club in Palm Beach. Along with Trump and Nauta, he's charged with attempting unsuccessfully to erase surveillance video at Mar-a-Lago sought by investigators. De Oliveira appeared in court but hasn't yet secured a local attorney and didn't enter a plea. He's expected to have a lawyer in place soon and his arraignment is now set for Tuesday. Trump waived his right to appear in court. Lawyers for both he and Nauta entered pleas of not guilty to new charges related to a classified war plan the former president allegedly showed to people without security clearances, and which he later allegedly withheld from investigators. Greg Allen, NPR News, Fort Pierce, Florida. Stocks wobbled to a mixed close on Wall Street following the latest update on inflation across the U.S. You're listening to NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. A local advocacy group is raising concerns about the aging prison population in Massachusetts. There were 195 incarcerated people who were 60 or older at the start of last year, according to the state. At that time, more than 550 people in Massachusetts prisons were in their 50s. Northampton-based Prison Policy Initiative says that could lead to higher health care costs as inmates age. NPR will have more on this concern nationwide coming up in about 10 minutes. The agency that oversees affordable housing in Boston has a new leader. Former City Councilor Kenzie Bach stepped into the role of administrator at Boston Housing Authority this week. Bach says she's focused on trying to create more units to keep up with demand. Mayor Wu is willing to provide the funds for us to think about building new public housing units again, for us to build public housing on public land, for us to look at connecting our federal subsidies, including project-based vouchers, into some of the new market rate buildings so that we can have them be uh, more income diverse and ground more of our families here in the city. Bach says fixing the high-priced housing market is a big challenge and is crucial, so middle-income families have somewhere to go. A New Hampshire woman and her child are healthy and were not harmed during their recent kidnapping ordeal in Haiti. That's according to the aid organization where the woman worked. Alex Dorsonville and her young daughter were abducted late last month in a gang-controlled area of Haiti's capital, Port-au-Prince. They were freed on Tuesday. Cellist Yo-Yo Ma will not perform at Tanglewood this week with the Boston Symphony Orchestra because he's tested positive for COVID-19. Ma was scheduled to perform on Saturday and Sunday. Soprano Renee Fleming is stepping in to perform. It's 434. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Circle Furniture, sourced in New England and focused on combining design with handmade craftsmanship. More about their sustainably crafted furniture at circlefurniture.com. Well, it looks like the summer storms will return tonight. Thunderstorms and possibly heavy rain. The low will be in the upper 60s. Tomorrow looks dry and sunny. We'll see a high around 82. 
Then if you want to grab some beach time this weekend, Saturday looks like the better day. It should be around 85 degrees with bright sun. Partly sunny Sunday, but there will be a chance of showers and thunderstorms. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox, streaming new and original British series starring Succession's Matthew McFadden and Game of Thrones' Gemma Whalen. Available at BritBox.com NPR. From Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process, Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Four Americans got out of Iran's notorious Avin prison today as part of a prisoner swap that is in the works with Iran. But along with one other American, they are still being held under house arrest as the U.S. and Iran finalize a deal to win their release. That could take weeks. NPR's Michelle Kellerman joins us now from the State Department. And Michelle, tell us what happened today. Right. So as you said, these four Americans who had been held in Avin were brought to a hotel in Tehran, and they're going to remain there under house arrest until this deal is finalized. Uh, they include Sia Maknamazi. He's a 51-year-old businessman who's been held the longest since 2015. His father, who had also been jailed, was allowed to leave Iran last year for health reasons. But Siamak had been left behind in several prisoner exchanges with Iran over the years. And I talked to the family lawyer, Jerry Genser today, and he said Siamak's mother was able to see him at the hotel. I just saw a picture of uh, their being reunited, um, which was uh, incredibly moving. Uh, it won't be something we can put out publicly, of course, uh, but it's just so incredibly exciting to see where at least we've gotten to today. That's one of the four Americans. What can you tell us about the others? So the second is a well-known environmentalist named Morad Tabaz. There's also a businessman, Imad Shargi, and a fourth American who the White House hasn't named. They also haven't named the fifth American, a woman who's part of these negotiations, but who was already out under house arrest before today. The U.S. says all five should never have been detained. Some have languished for years, convicted in secret courts with murky charges. The U.S. considers all of them wrongfully de- wrongfully detained. What information do we have about the deal that could secure their full release? So Iranian authorities have gone on record in their state media saying that the U.S. is going to release some Iranian prisoners in exchange. They also say that Iran is going to get access to billions of dollars um, that South Korea owes for oil shipments. And that's tracking with what we're hearing from sources familiar with the negotiations. There's about $6 billion or the equivalent in other currencies that have been stuck in South Korea. And the idea is that that money is going to be moved to another bank in Qatar and that Iran would be able to use it to buy food and medicine or anything that isn't under U.S. sanctions. There's still some work to do on that. The White House says these negotiations are ongoing and delicate. So is the White House expecting political pushback given the fact that there is money involved here? 
Yeah, I mean, they're certainly bracing for that. The Biden administration has been briefing members of Congress on all of this, and they make the case that this is Iran's money. But I don't think that's going to stop critics from seeing this as a ransom payment. Critics are going to point out that while the funds are meant to be used for humanitarian goods, money is fungible. So even with tight restrictions in place, it could be a boon for Iran's nuclear and ballistic missile programs. So, Michelle, bottom line, there is a deal, but it's not done yet? Right. There's a plan, but a lot could go wrong. Genser, the lawyer, says he's gone through a lot of false starts over the years that he's been involved in this. Take a listen to what he had to say. I won't believe it until it's actually done. Um, But the fact that Iran is publicly acknowledging that there's a deal and is saying that these Americans are going to be pardoned gives me much greater hope that this is going to actually happen because now they're publicly on the record having said that this is what was going to happen. So now he's hoping that both sides are really going to follow through. Sources have told us that this could take several weeks before the five uh, Americans can come home. And though the Iranians have said they agreed to this deal, there are hardliners there who might want to derail it. So and a lot of disputes between the U.S. and Iran that could get in the way. So we'll have to watch. Indeed. NPR's Michelle Kellerman at the State Department. Michelle, thank you. Thank you. One of the world's biggest interfaith gatherings is set to take place in Chicago next week. It's the Parliament of the World's Religions. The meeting comes at a time when belief is often seen as a force that divides. But as NPR religion correspondent Jason DeRose reports, its progressive organizers want to send a different message. This will be Anila Ali's first Parliament of the World's Religions. She traces her interest in the interfaith movement to scripture. God says in the Quran to Muslims, I have created you into tribes, different tribes, so that you may get to know each other. Know each other in deep rather than superficial ways. Which is why Ali, who's the president of the American Muslim and Multifaith Women's Empowerment Council, is speaking on women and Islam. She says that topic is usually marked by stereotypes rather than knowledge. And Islam came at a point in Arabia where girls were being buried alive. Islam came to liberate women. It was a modern, progressive religion. And a lot of the teachings have been stolen. Stolen, she says, by religious radicals. And I feel that it's time we set the record straight. When she joined some 10,000 participants from more than 80 countries and 200 religious traditions. The meeting has its origins back in 1893, when the first Parliament of the World's Religions took place as part of the World's Fair, known as the Columbian Exposition. It's viewed as the birth of the modern interfaith movement, which holds that different religions have something to learn from each other. So you're not living a life from fear, doubt, and worry. You're living a life being pulled by a vision and being inspired by that vision to make a difference on the planet. Chicago will be Michael Bernard Beckwith's fourth parliament. He's the founder of Agape International Spiritual Center in Los Angeles. What he's most looking forward to is a symposium on global ethics. The hope is to discuss and sign a document that outlines what Beckwith calls a moral compass. We want to commit ourselves to a culture of nonviolence and respect for life, a culture of solidarity and a just economic order, a culture of life and truthfulness in this time of fake news, (laughs) a culture of equal rights and partnership between men and women, a culture of sustainability and care for the earth. We recognize that 
we are creating the world as we wish it to be. Phyllis Curat serves as the Parliament's program chair. The Wiccan priestess says this year's theme, A Call to Conscience, Defending Freedom and Human Rights, is close to her heart. My hope is that the individuals who attend will come out of it awake, enlightened as to the crisis that we are all facing, this global crisis, this scourge of authoritarianism and the threat that it poses to each of us, both individually and collectively, to our freedom, to our human rights, to our freedom to practice, our faith, whatever it is. But it is sometimes difficult, says Parliament Executive Director Stephen Avino, for people to see the good that religions do, given how people use faith to abridge the rights of others based on race or gender or sexual orientation. I think the biggest hurdle is that people have been using religion to cause harm, and it has turned people away from religion in general. Despite that reality, there is still hope, says Muslim women's advocate Anila Ali. I have always believed that religion is a very powerful tool, that it is also like fire. Depending on who wields it, Ali says, religion can bring destruction or it can bring light. Jason DeRose, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The number of elderly Americans serving time in prison has skyrocketed in recent decades. In 1991, for example, just 3% of the men and women behind bars in state and federal prisons were 55 or older. Over the course of three decades, that percentage of elderly prisoners has grown to 15%. That's led to climbing costs for prisons as they deal with the more advanced medical needs of the incarcerated. Sarah Lear of Wisconsin Public Radio reports. Oak Hill Correctional, a minimum security facility, is surrounded by cornfields, just outside the state's capital in Madison, Wisconsin. Most of the inmates there sleep in bunk beds, but at a newly opened unit within Oak Hill, all the beds are low to the ground. There's many of the guys that are down there that cannot navigate steps. Oak Hill's nursing supervisor, Rachel Snow, says the low beds make it accessible for inmates who use walkers or wheelchairs. On this day, more than 20 inmates are in the unit. Some are getting medication through IVs. Another does an arm exercise with a nurse to improve range of motion. Snow says many need help with dressing or eating. Others require extra medical attention. We have many guys down there with respiratory issues, end-stage COPD, emphysema, cardiac issues. There are more than 20,000 people locked up in Wisconsin prisons, and more than 15 percent are over age 55. The graying of Wisconsin's prison population mirrors national trends. Mike Wessler, with the Prison Policy Initiative, says that's partially because the country's population is getting older, but it's also due to longer prison sentences. In the 80s and 90s and early 2000s, there was a real focus on tough on crime policies that ushered in an era of mass incarceration. Harlan Richards was 30 when he was convicted of murder after stabbing someone in a fight. He served decades behind bars in Wisconsin before he was paroled at age 67. 
He says prison life is different for older inmates. Yeah, I mean, you get aches and pains and you, you, you get medical problems and a young guy can stand sleeping on a hard bed. He can stand, you know, the, the substandard food and stuff like that. Bryce Peterson, a scientist with the CNA Center for Justice Research and Innovation, says many people enter prison in worse health than the general public, in part because of poverty. Then, medical problems can get even worse because of the conditions within prison, including violence and poor health care. He says that all has financial consequences. The best estimates are that it's anywhere from two to five times more to take care of someone who's older than it is to take care of someone who's younger in prison. A 2015 report from the U.S. Inspector General found federal prisons with the highest percentage of older inmates spent more than $10,000 annually per inmate on medical care. That compares to less than $2,000 per inmate at prisons with younger populations. At the same time, studies show the chance of people reoffending decreases with age. Every state except for Iowa has what's known as compassionate release policies. Those allow inmates to get out early because of advanced age or serious health problems. But Wessler, the prison policy initiative spokesman, says compassionate release is rarely used. It's a cumbersome process. It requires lots of approvals, lots of documentation. Wessler hopes for a more far-reaching solution. My hope is that before prisons consider opening a nursing home behind bars, uh, say to look at revisiting some of these harsh sentencing laws. He and other advocates say the focus should be on reducing the incarcerated population to begin with. For NPR News, I'm Sarah Lear in Wisconsin. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Coming up, President Biden has approved a major disaster declaration for Hawaii. The move makes federal funds available to those affected by the wildfires on Maui. And Vice President Kamala Harris is playing a big role in the presidential campaign, taking trips to push the president's message to women and people of color. Those stories just after the top of the hour here on All Things Considered. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, a structured educational and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive functioning coaching, yoga, and exercise are designed to develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Fall semester starts September 18th. Semesteroff.com. Well, federal forecasters are predicting up to 21 named storms and five major Atlantic hurricanes this year. That's above normal and an uptick from the number they predicted earlier this year. Matthew Rosencrantz is with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. We've increased the odds for an above normal hurricane season overall, um, upping our ranges a little bit. And that's really to account for the continued warm, record warm sea surface temperatures in the Atlantic. About 90 percent of all tropical storms and hurricanes happen in the peak season between August and October. Well, we will have showers and thunderstorms tonight, maybe some gusty winds and heavy rain. It'll be in the upper 60s. Tomorrow will clear out for a sunny, hot day in the low 80s. This is WBUR. On the 50th anniversary of hip-hop, we'll take a special look at how the West Coast helped make hip-hop one of the most dominant cultural forces in the world. What hip-hop was in the 90s, specifically for South Central, was just journalism. Taking the microphone and showing the world, world. how much you were ignoring Black America. Mm -hmm. 
That's On Point tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Ecuador is under a state of emergency today following the assassination on Wednesday of leading presidential candidate Fernando Villavicencio. The former investigative journalist had been ruffling feathers with his firebrand attacks on the corruption and drug trafficking that has been besieging Ecuador. The elections are due to be held in just over a week. Simeon Tegel reports from neighboring Peru and a warning. This piece starts with the sound of gunfire. This was the moment that Hitman opened fire on Ecuadorian presidential candidate Fernando Villavicencio as he left a campaign rally in the capital, Quito, killing him instantly. Members of the security detail fought back and the alleged assassin, as well as several bystanders and police officers, were hurt in the shootout. The gunman later died from his injuries in police custody. President Guillermo Lasso announced a 60-day national state of emergency and said he would be sending the military into the streets to crack down on the cocaine gangs, who in recent years have unleashed bloodshed on this once peaceful South American nation, including deadly prison riots and an epidemic of gangland killings. Ecuador grows minimal amounts of cocaine, but is sandwiched between the two largest producers, Colombia and Peru. It has become a major transit hub for the drug on its way to the United States. Increasingly, cartels from Mexico have been building alliances with Ecuadorian gangs and bringing their uber-violent tactics to the country. Una gravísima amenaza de uno de los capos del cartel de Sinaloa, me refiero alias Fito. Villavicencio, who, according to polls, had a chance of finishing second and heading to a runoff vote, had repeatedly warned of the death threats he was receiving on the campaign trail, including from the Sinaloa cartel, one of Mexico's bloodiest. But, as he said at this recent rally, he refused to wear a bulletproof vest or tone down his outspoken attacks on the drug traffickers and corrupt officials who, he said, have turned Ecuador into a narco state. The assassination of the 59-year-old former investigative journalist has left Ecuador in a state of shock. It also marks a watershed in a country which, despite years of vicious political infighting and even persecution of opponents, has been almost entirely free of political violence. Villavicencio's sister, Alexandra, told journalists that she blames the government for her brother's death and what she calls a plot to silence him. The big question is whether Villavicencio's murder turbocharges a new push in Ecuador to confront the cocaine trade, or whether it leaves the drug mafias stronger than ever. For NPR News, this is Simeon Tegel in Lima, Peru. Science fiction movies generally have big budgets and lots of special effects, but critic Bob Mondello says two sci-fi films opening this weekend, The Pod Generation and Jules, are low-key and intimate. In the movie Jules, Milton is aging in place, his home near enough town that he can walk in for town meetings. I think we ought to change our town slogan. And far enough from other houses that he doesn't really have neighbors. His daughter pops by to make sure he's okay and worries when she finds, say, a can of beans in his bathroom medicine cabinet. Any idea why you put it there? 
I must have been distracted. But basically everything's fine until one night, he's awakened by a loud noise and goes out in the backyard. Oh my. And does exactly what anyone would do under the circumstances. 911 operator, what is your emergency? There's a spaceship that's crashed in my backyard and it has crashed my azaleas. Spaceship. Yes. Sir, placing prank calls to 911 emergency services is a felony. It's not a prank. Sir, please try lying down and go back to sleep. I'm wide awake. Hello? Milton, played by Ben Kingsley, with both an American accent and a full head of hair, tries unsuccessfully to reach his daughter, but he knows she'd think he was full of beans, and anyway, there's another town meeting. We should change the town motto to something clearer. Also... The UFO has crashed in my backyard and has taken out my azaleas and has destroyed my birdbath. Did you just say UFO? Things get even more complicated when a little blue alien crawls from the ship onto Milton's patio and Milton... I'm not sure what to do. This hasn't happened to me before. ...does his very best to be polite. Do you want to come inside because it's warmer in here? And why not, if the town's not going to take him seriously anyway? Director Mark Turtletaub keeps the mood light, though there's a poignant undertow to a story that's as much about being allowed to grow old with dignity as it is about an extraterrestrial. Ben Kingsley is sort of getting his own E.T. here after winning an Oscar for Gandhi the year Spielberg's E.T. came out. Also on hand is Third Rock from the Sun's Jane Curtin as an alien skeptic. When you talk like that, it makes them all take us less seriously. What should I do? Not tell anybody? And an absolutely indispensable Harriet Sansom Harris. What the f is that? Who will later suggest they name the little guy Jules, all of which keeps the flying saucer tail Jules persuasively down to earth and grounded. The pod generation comes at reality a little differently. It's set in a future not far from our present, where Rachel, played by Amelia Clark, awakes to the soothing voice of series distant cousin Elena. Good morning, Rachel. Did you have a good night's sleep? Mmm, great. Thanks, Elena. Elena starts the coffee, chooses Rachel's work outfit, and does a quick health scan. I have the results from your gut intelligence test. Friendly bacteria are thriving. All before Rachel's had time to look out the window. Alvi, her botanist husband, who's played by Chiwetel Ejiofor, is more skeptical about their digital assistant. Thanks, Elena. Not now. So Elena burns his toast. This is a future in which nature, much to Alvi's annoyance, has been discounted and humankind's ability to engineer progress reigns supreme, nowhere more so than in pregnancy. Why gain 35 pounds and stretch marks when you don't have to? But hold on. You put us on a wait list to have a baby and an egg. No, it's not an egg. It's, it's an egg. It's a large plastic pod shaped like an egg that does all the gestating. Rachel has Alvi visit her computerized shrink, a giant eyeball, and Alvi comes around. Let's do it, Rachel. Really? Yeah. And I sort of mean around, literally. Director Sophie Barthas has put curves everywhere in the architecture, also in the script, as when Alvi brings a tiny potted plant to help decorate the baby's room. And you just, you want to, you know, you want to, you want to leave it in here. Human beings, babies included, are supposed to be around plants and trees. You could design a hologram version. The film's satire is mild, though wide-ranging, as when Alvi has to practically beg a student to taste a fig that was not created by a food printer. It's from the tree, Professor. Well, yes. The pod generation trades primarily in amusing reversals and gentle satire, and as with Jules, no lightsabers. Can't say they're much missed. I'm Bob Mandela.
Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Angie, dedicated to helping homeowners find skilled pros to get their home projects done well, from everyday repairs to dream remodels. Reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief, Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR, ahead in about 20 minutes on All Things Considered. 20 years ago, Atlanta rappers created a subgenre of rap, trap music. Two decades later, its influence is everywhere. Well, we can expect showers and thunderstorms tonight. Maybe some heavy rain and gusty winds will have lows in the upper 60s. Tomorrow, a sunny lead-in to the weekend will have a high of 82. Then Saturday, more sunshine with temps in the mid-80s. Around 85 again Sunday, partly sunny skies with a chance of thunderstorms. Right now, it's 79 degrees in Boston under overcast skies. This is WBUR. I'm Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Boston clears a hurdle in its efforts to rebuild the bridge to the city's Long Island and reopen addiction and homelessness programs there. This is about people and the opportunity for an island to really unlock uh, the pathways to recovery. Quincy is fighting the move. It's Thursday, August 10th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Lynn Jolliker, in for Lisa Mullins. A curator who resigned from the Worcester Art Museum sues two museum leaders for alleged racial discrimination. Day to day was incredibly difficult because I was constantly on edge. I was just waiting for a comment to be made or something to happen. We'll have more on her claims and the museum's response. And gas and groceries got more expensive in July, but prices for other goods went down. We'll have the latest on the modest acceleration. It's 5.01, first, this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden has declared a major disaster area in Hawaii as the state deals with devastating wildfires. As NPR's Tamara Keith explains, Biden spoke by phone with Hawaii's governor today. President Biden shared his condolences with Hawaii Governor Josh Green, and he said he is surging federal resources from the military and FEMA to help fight the fires, evacuate residents and tourists, and assist victims. Our prayers with the people of Hawaii, but not just our prayers. Every asset we have will be available to them, and we've seen they've seen their homes, their business destroyed, and some have lost loved ones, and it's not over yet. The hurricane-driven fires swept through Maui, destroying homes and businesses and claiming dozens of lives. The ferocity of the flames forcing some to seek refuge in the ocean. 
Tamara Keith, NPR News, traveling with the president. The death toll from the fires there has now risen to at least 36. Iranian state media are reporting five American detainees are now under house arrest. They'll eventually be released under a deal with the U.S. Iran's account tracks what sources close to the negotiation say is in the works. NPR's Arezu Rosvani reports. According to Iranian state media, five American detainees who were just transferred from prison to house arrest will be freed in exchange for two things. Access to $6 billion in frozen funds and the release of five Iranian nationals currently jailed in the U.S. Sources familiar with the negotiations confirm this basic agreement. The $6 billion is frozen in banks in South Korea, which paid for Iranian oil some years ago as part of an arrangement the Trump administration authorized at the time. The assets have been held there since. Critics will likely view this exchange as a ransom. Proponents argue the money was Iran's all along and that it fit within an old but valid U.S.-devised framework. The timeline for unlocking the funds and the prisoner swap is unclear. NPR News. Stocks opened higher this morning as the Labor Department reported a modest uptick in the annual inflation rate. NPR Scott Horsley has more. Consumer prices in July were up 3.2 percent from a year ago. That's a slight acceleration from the 3 percent annual inflation rate we saw in June, and it comes after 12 straight months of falling inflation. Prices rose two-tenths of a percent between June and July, matching the previous monthly increase. Rising rents account for most of that change, but gas and grocery prices were also up last month. New and used cars got cheaper in July, while airfares plunged more than 8 percent. Stripping out volatile food and energy prices, so-called core inflation was 4.7 percent in July, down slightly from the month before. Financial markets are betting the Federal Reserve will leave interest rates unchanged when officials meet next month. Scott Horsley, NPR News. Washington. Looking at the numbers on Wall Street, the Dow was up 52 points today. The Nasdaq closed up 15 points. You're listening to NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. The director of the Worcester Art Museum and a supervisor are being accused of discriminating against one of its curators. Rachel Parikh has filed a lawsuit claiming she was mocked and ridiculed for being a brown-skinned South Asian woman. She resigned last fall from her job as associate curator of the arts of Asia and the Islamic world. An investigator hired by the museum found Parikh's claims to be largely credible, but no other colleagues would corroborate her accounts. We'll have more on this story later this hour. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is touting plans to rebuild the bridge to the city's Long Island and reopen substance use treatment facilities there. This is about people and the opportunity for an island to really unlock uh, the pathways to recovery. The mayor announced the state issued a key permit for the bridge. Brendan Little received treatment on Long Island before the bridge and programs were suddenly shut down in 2014. That made me briefly consider that I was worthy of that space, a consideration that was the first step in my recovery journey. City leaders hope to open the bridge and recovery campus in four years. They say that will cost hundreds of millions of dollars. Quincy's mayor opposes the bridge because it can only be accessed by going through a neighborhood in his city. He says he'll appeal the state permit. The Steamship Authority is canceling a handful of ferry trips between Woods Hole and Martha's Vineyard tomorrow. Authority Communications Director Sean Driscoll says the cancellation started today after a crew member became ill. 
crew member on board Motor Vessel Island Home, which is on the Martha's Vineyard route, was ill due to COVID. So we were not able to find a replacement for that crew member, which meant that vessel wouldn't be able to sail. As a precaution, the entire crew is being told to isolate and cannot work. The Steamship Authority has had other service disruptions this summer because of worker shortages and mechanical problems with some of the ferries. Well, tonight we will have rain, some of it heavy, likely some thunderstorms, too. There's a flood watch uh, for much of the area tonight. Then things will clear out for a sunny Friday. Tomorrow's high will be in the low 80s. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by EBSCO, supporting open source technology and making open platforms possible for libraries of all sizes. Learn more at EBSCO.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Vice President Kamala Harris has had a bumpy road in office, often mocked by Republicans and even criticized by some Democrats who worry she has not stepped up to the job and could be a political liability. But as the 2024 campaign gets underway, the vice president is taking on a critical role. She's been on the road all summer selling the Democrats' message to crowds full of women and black and brown voters. NPR White House correspondent Asma Khalid reports. The vice president was flying to Indiana one day in late July to deliver remarks at a black sorority convention. And en route, she heard about these new rules in Florida for how black history ought to be taught. Harris was outraged. Here's her senior advisor, Stephanie Young. She pulled us all together. We were on a plane going another place, and she's like, I think we got to go down there. Young recounted the moment to me at a cafe near the White House. We scrambled within 24 hours. We were there. It was very important for her to stand up in that moment. The very next day, Harris was in Jacksonville, Florida, condemning the new standards, which she characterized this way. They want to replace history with lies. Middle school students in Florida to be told that enslaved people benefited from slavery. Harris was now the Democrats' rapid response captain. The next week, as Republican presidential hopefuls descended on Des Moines, Harris was in Iowa, too, blasting the state's new abortion ban and trying to rally the troops. Register to vote and then vote. The vice president's central message is that freedom is under attack by extremist leaders. Freedom could mean reproductive rights, book bans, voting rights, or even gun safety. She ties it all together. And she's often taking that message to key constituencies in the Democratic Party, delivering speeches at a large Latino conference one week and at a women's convention of the AME Church the next week. Here's Harris advisor Stephanie Young again. At the end of the day, she does have the unique ability to reach um, women, of course, and, and people of color. Groups that Democrats need to win. In her speeches, Harris generally touts the accomplishments of the administration, things like capping the cost of insulin at $35 a month. And then she talks about the Democratic agenda to fight for freedoms. It's not a message that's really all that different from Biden. But Terrence Woodbury told me Harris still has a distinct role in this 2024 campaign. Woodbury's a Democratic pollster. It's more about who and what she represents than what she can say and what she can do. The message isn't that different, but I do think that there's an audience that's going to hear it better from her than they will from him. 
So I flew out to the annual NAACP convention, where Harris was speaking, to ask people for myself. And that's where I met Luana Bivens from Stockton, California. When she responded to the governor of Florida and took a position of, we will not tolerate this type of taking America back to the dark ages, made me so proud. Yet others feel like Harris has not used her platform effectively enough. Connie Burton, Ashley Foxworth, and Latrice Rowell are all from the Tampa, Florida area. They say it feels like the VP needs to take on more of a leadership role. They specifically spoke about the education fights in their home state of Florida. We want more of an action plan. We don't want a reactionary response just because the governor is on the ledge. We want her exactly. Yep. Yes. Proactivity is what she needs to focus on, not being reactive, waiting on something to happen. A number of people here at the convention, like Ella Coffey, say they do want to hear from Harris. In fact, they want to hear from her more because they think she has a unique story. She does have a message, but she has got to tell that message. She's got to tell it. So I'm happy that she's our vice president, but I am discouraged about some things over the last four years. I don't see her out there enough. Harris is hoping to be out there more. Her staff says she intends to keep traveling this fall. Her next stop, a gun safety conference in Chicago tomorrow. Asma Khalid, NPR News. And now to Hawaii, where residents and visitors to the island of Maui are grappling with the devastation of major wildfires. We have not seen a destruction like this on our island, I don't think, ever before. NPR spoke with Napua Greg, a musician and cultural practitioner on the island. She and her 80-year-old mother had to evacuate their homes. It's an unnerving feeling to, you don't want to fall asleep because you never know how that fire is going to progress. Both have returned home, but listen to how Greg described the devastation that she saw. A lot of the iconic places that you, you go to, when you visit Maui, are no longer totally devastated and burnt. Earlier today, President Biden issued a major disaster declaration for Hawaii and ordered federal aid to areas affected by wildfires. U.S. Senator Maisie Hirono of Hawaii joins us now. Welcome back, Senator. Thank you so much, Juana. This has been one of the most deadly wildfires in the United States in recent years. Buildings and communities have been destroyed, communities broken. What is the latest that you've heard about the fire damage and devastation there? The assessment is uh, only beginning now because you, you couldn't have get access to Lahaina Town. And so really in the beginning phases, of course, we had to get the fires under control, which still is uh, burning in some places. And then the, the search and rescue operations are continuing. Those are among the most uh, highest priorities to, toward the safety of our people. But uh, it's very devastating. And the national coverage of the wildfires of Maui, uh, it, you can see the raging fires. Yeah. And, and anyone watching that would know that the, the damage is going to be very extensive. I'm grateful that the president declared a, a, a disaster declaration for Maui so that federal resources can be brought to the island. You mentioned those ongoing fires and the fact that some parts of the island are still not able to be reached by rescuers safely. Do you have a sense of a timeline, how soon that they, they'll be able to reach those areas to get a broader sense of just how much devastation there is, the death toll? 
That is happening right now. And as I said, because of the high winds, for example, uh, you couldn't get helicopters in that area, et cetera. But the assessment is continuing. And so but when you have an entire town, Lahaina, a very historic, culturally uh, a very important town, pretty much burned to the ground, the assessment of damages will be tremendous. And that is why it's all hands on deck for all of us in Hawaii, as well as with our federal family of agencies. We have heard so much about Lahaina over the last few days. It's in the center of Hawaii's history, beloved by so many. I want to ask you, is there any memory that you'd like to share with us about Lahaina? It is a very historic town. It's a Whaley town. At one time, it was the capital of our monarchy, so historically very significant to the Native Hawaiian people. It is a destination for tourists in itself, and I have been to Lahaina. I have stayed at the Pioneer Inn, and I think most of us have had that kind of an experience. Yeah. It, it's really a very historic town, and it also had the oldest school uh, west of the Rockies, so uh, really historic, and to see the, these historic buildings and churches uh, burned to the ground is, uh, is just very heartbreaking for all of us. And, and, and yes, our hearts go out to uh, the people who um, lost loved ones in this uh, ongoing tragedy. I mean, the images of the devastation are hard to look at, and our hearts are all going out to the people there. I think a lot of people watching this story, seeing those images from home, are curious how they can help. What do Hawaiians need most urgently in this moment? Right now, as I said, they... they um, uh, Aside from, of course, the state and the county and volunteers all very much helping people leave the island and setting up ways where they can transit to hotels on Oahu or back to the mainland, all of those kinds of things are happening right now. But I, I have also been getting a lot of inquiries for people on the mainland, how they can help. They can go to MauiCounty.gov, and that is a Maui County website that can direct people to um, monetary support um, you know how they can people can help from all over the country and and in that way and as far as Maui County they have set up a collection sites for people who want to donate goods for example but the outpouring of a desire to help is tremendous this is going to be a long-term recovery though because the devastation is tremendous and it is deep so the federal agencies who are here such as uh, you know I, I can the, the, the it's the Department of Defense Department of Energy yeah. uh, the EPA Department of Agriculture the Small Business Administration, the family of federal agencies are all here, and they're going to stay here to provide the kind of support for recovery efforts, which will be concerted, and uh, it will take time. As we mentioned earlier, President Biden issued a major disaster declaration today, which means Hawaii should get more aid money. You mentioned the number of agencies that are on the ground or in some way providing assistance to folks there. Do you feel like you're getting what you need from the federal government? Is what is being brought right now, is that enough? We've got about 40 seconds left here. My hope and expectation is that uh, this will be an ongoing support because the recovery will take time. And it's not a one-shot, we'll give you this money and that's it. Uh, no, I, I have every intention of working with my delegation and uh, with the, the, the leadership on Hawaii to make sure that the federal resources continue as long as they are necessary. We've been speaking with Senator Maisie Hirono of Hawaii about the devastation from wildfires on Maui. Senator Hirono, thank you so much, and we're thinking of everyone there. 
Thank you very much. Aloha. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. And thanks for being with us here on WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes, remembering Sixto Rodriguez, the musician whose story was documented in the film Searching for Sugar Man. On Wall Street, the Dow dropped almost 200 points today, just over half a percent. The S&P dipped 0.7 percent. NASDAQ fell 1.2 percent. In other business news, the Supreme Court is temporarily blocking a nationwide settlement with OxyContin maker Purdue Pharma that would shield members of the Sackler family, who own the company, from lawsuits. The justices today agreed to a Biden administration request to pause the $6 billion agreement reached last year with state and local governments. The high court will hear arguments before the end of the year over whether the settlement can proceed. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Goddard House Assisted Living in Brookline, embracing the aging experience for seniors in the Boston area. Learn more about their innovative programs at goddardhouse.org. And Volante Farms in Needham, with the ice cream window to beat the summer heat open until 9 each night, scooping local Crescent Ridge ice cream. Volantefarms.com for more info. Take the WBUR or WBUR along with you wherever you're heading this summer. Download or update the WBUR app and just tap to listen live and catch up on what's happening. Looks like the summer storms will return tonight, thunderstorms and possibly heavy rain. The low will be in the upper 60s tonight. Then tomorrow looks dry and sunny. We'll see a high around 82. If you want to grab some beach time this weekend, Saturday looks like the better day. It should be around 85 degrees with bright sun. Partly sunny Sunday, but there will be a chance of showers and thunderstorms. Then Monday should be mostly sunny with temps around 83. Right now it's 77 degrees in Boston with light rain. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies find food for meetings and team lunches with catering menus from restaurants nationwide, online ordering, and 24-7 live support. EasyCater.com. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. About two minutes into the song, Y'all Scared, Andre 3000 of Outkast asks a question. Have you ever thought of the meaning of the word trap? It was 1998. Outkast was the pride of Atlanta. And that word, trap, was showing up all over verses by the city's rappers. I started hearing this word around like maybe like 96, 97. Maurice Garland is a journalist who grew up in Atlanta and covers its rap scene. 
At first glance, the answer to Andre 3000's question seemed straightforward. You was out there hustling, you know, you was out there trapping. So, dealing drugs. And the place where you dealt the drugs, that was the trap. You had a trap set up, which is where you did your business at. But then there were the more metaphorical meanings. I'm trapping because I'm securing something, you know what I'm saying? Like I'm securing some kind of resources, but you know, I'm doing it in this illegal manner. For A.R. Shaw, another Atlanta hip hop journalist and author of the book Trap History, the trap was a consequence of urban planning. Atlanta has a lot of one-way streets, a lot of cul-de-sacs, and during the crack cocaine era, a lot of those cul-de-sacs became known as a trap because it was only one way in and one way out. Whatever the etymology, by the early 2000s, trap had infused itself into the lexicon of Atlanta. And in the city's rap scene, it was about to become a subgenre of its own. They turned something that was negative, which was the crack cocaine era, and they created an art form of music that pretty much told that story. All week to celebrate 50 years of hip-hop, we're looking at key moments that helped define the genre. Today, the birth of trap music and the rise of Southern rap. In 2001, a young rapper from the Bankhead neighborhood of Atlanta released his debut album. Hey, take a good look at me, now picture me unhappy. T.I. was born Clifford Joseph Harris Jr. That first album, it wasn't a flop, but it wasn't a smash either. T.I. was dropped from his label, and he started selling mixtapes. They were sending these things, you know, hand to hand. You know, they would show up in their car, and they would just open the boxes and sell them themselves. That's Maurice Garland again. Those mixtapes took off, and T.I. signed with Atlantic Records. In 2003, he released his second official album, and this one was called Trap Music. This time, T.I. broke through. The album debuted at number four on the Billboard 200 and sold more than 100,000 copies in its first week. And it gave a name to a specific flavor of Atlanta rap that reflected the city's street culture. When they saw that that was the album title, like it kind of just sent off like a, almost like a bat signal to a degree, like, hey, yeah, this ain't gonna be underground no more. A quick note before we go any further, in the decades since this moment, multiple people have made credible allegations of sexual assault by T.I. and his wife. And any story about trap music needs to acknowledge that. For now, let's return to the story. We are literally 20 years deep on trap music, (laughs) and it hasn't gone anywhere. Brianna Younger is a hip-hop writer. I sat down with her and NPR hip-hop editor Sheldon Pierce to talk about the birth of trap and the rise of Southern rap. This sound, this slang, this scene take over rap and become the center of its style and everything that would come after that. I started by asking about the remarkable staying power of trap. Maybe it's the continued waves of evolution. You have that first wave of T.I. and Jeezy, and of course Gucci on the mixtape circuit. To Waka Flocka Flame and the 808 Mafia, and then you have Future and Migos and Young Thug, each wave sort of building on the next. As that is happening, you have this steady infiltration of pop music that is taking place over the course of this rise. Next thing you know, you have Katy Perry going from Teenage Dream to working with Migos. Looks like you've been stopping. You got those hungry eyes. 
it permeated the culture so deeply that it became nearly impossible to remove it. And it seems like everywhere you look, you can still sort of see the residue. Last time I checked, I was the man on these I want to ask you all about mixtape culture around the same time. T.I. was just one of many who used mixtapes to kickstart a career. Can you just help us understand a little bit the mixtape phenomenon and the role that it played in Southern hip hop? It's truly hard to overstate the impact that has on a lot of Southern rappers' careers in particular. Yeah. Lil Wayne's entire career is built around mixtapes. Gucci Mane's entire career is built around mixtapes. And so, yeah, like the entire lifeblood of Southern rap begins to kind of flow through these mixtapes. Mixtape culture has always sort of been essential to the way rap has spread on a grassroots level. With the rise of the internet, that meant potentially going beyond your local scene and into suburban homes across the country. And in the course of that, you end up building up these regional scenes in a way that doesn't involve the traditional record industry. Down in the dirty south, this how I go, making money, make, making money, getting that dough. So, I mean, at this point, there's a lot more attention on the South, but that doesn't mean that there's necessarily more respect. Brianna, can you talk about the ways that Southern rappers were looked at by rappers from New York and those out West? Yeah, I think, you know, it very much mirrored the way in which Southerners, particularly Black Southerners, are looked at in general, which is that it's ignorant, it's not really cultured. The Southern twang, even like even when people hear the accents, like there is just a lack of taking any of it seriously or trying to even position it as something that is like a part of the broader hip hop culture that contributes to it and isn't taking from it. To some extent, it almost seemed like they were treated as like interlopers. You know, I think it's really interesting that as a genre, hip hop can be so regional in a way that you don't necessarily see when you study and think about other genres of music. They don't necessarily have the same sort of distinct geographical reputations. What do you think makes location so important when we talk about hip hop? I think there's such a sense of where you're from being crucial to not only the way that rappers see themselves, but the way that they build community. Hip hop culture by nature is a competitive sport born of breakdancing battles and graffiti bombing and it's territorial. And while I think sometimes that mentality has gotten rappers in a bit of trouble, hmm. uh, more often than not, it has bonded them. They have found pride in where they live and who they know, and they internalize that sense of place into their characters, and it becomes such a source of soul for the music. And I think this is just also indicative of every culture, but especially Black culture. Like, where you're from influences how you speak, how you dress, and like a local identity has always been just an essential part of Black culture as a whole. Even predating hip-hop, you get Detroit techno, Chicago house, and these are, you know, historically Black genres. Like, there's always been this need to identify and signify via location. That was journalist Brianna Younger and NPR hip-hop editor Sheldon Pierce. Tomorrow, we'll continue our series celebrating 50 years of hip-hop with a look at Nicki Minaj and the Internet Age. This is NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Ahead in about 20 minutes, we'll have the latest on Boston taking a big step toward rebuilding the bridge to Long Island in Boston Harbor and creating a new campus to help people who are experiencing addiction and homelessness. And a former curator sues Worcester Art Museum. Well, we can expect more showers and thunderstorms tonight, maybe some heavy rain and gusty winds, lows in the upper 60s. Tomorrow should be a sunny lead-in to the weekend. We'll have a high of 82. Saturday, more sunshine with temps in the mid-80s, and around 85 again Sunday with partly sunny skies, but a chance of thunderstorms. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Shakespeare and Company in Lenox, presenting A Midsummer Night's Dream, now through September 10th. Tickets at Shakespeare.org. And Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. There's no question that African Americans created hip-hop, but Latinos have also played an essential and historic role in the birth and evolution of the art form. We celebrate 50 years of hip-hop with our friends from Alt Latino on the next Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WB1. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. President Biden has approved federal disaster relief for Hawaii to help displace residents on the island of Maui following devastating wildfires that have claimed the lives of at least 36 people. From Hawaii Public Radio, here's Bill Dorman. Increased federal aid is coming to Hawaii and will be put to immediate use on the two islands most affected by the wildfires, the Big Island of Hawaii and Maui. The west side of Maui remains the focus as firefighters are still battling flames there and precise information remains incomplete. Power and phone service remain out in the area and that is complicating communication. Airlines have been moving many visitors and some residents off island. Many are coming to Honolulu on the island of Oahu. The Hawaii Convention Center has been turned into a shelter with room for as many as 4,000 people. For NPR News, I'm Bill Dorman in Honolulu. Thousands of teacher vacancies in Florida have yet to be filled, despite the fact that most kids in the state went back to school this week. Danielle Pryor of member station WMFE has more. There are currently 7,000 teaching positions that still need to be filled in Florida. Today was the first day of school for most districts. Florida Education Association President Andrew Sparr says that's 900 more vacancies than the same time last year. He says two things are making the statewide shortage worse, low teacher pay and new laws that took effect on July 1st, limiting how and what teachers can teach. Well, I can talk about it from a very personal standpoint. My daughter is going into ninth grade in Volusia County, and uh, her English teacher quit last week. In addition to these open teaching positions, the state still needs to find 5,000 more support staff. For NPR News, I'm Danielle Pryor in Orlando. Stocks wobbled to a mostly mixed close on Wall Street today. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. State health officials this afternoon are reporting nearly 1,400 new COVID cases in Massachusetts in the past seven days. That's about 300 more cases than were reported at this time last week. And it's the highest one-week total of new cases since mid-April. 
212 people in the state are hospitalized with COVID-19. That's also the highest number since April. However, both numbers are significantly lower than those that were reported at this time last year. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration announced today they are now forecasting five major hurricanes in the Atlantic this season. WBUR's Barbara Moran reports forecasters are pointing to record high ocean temperatures as the reason. A climate pattern in the Pacific, known as El Nino, affects global weather, and it tends to tamp down hurricane formation in the Atlantic. However, it looks like off-the-charts ocean temperatures may cancel out some of that effect, and it could also fuel bigger, stronger storms. Bernadette Woods-Plackey is the chief meteorologist with the nonprofit Climate Central. We've got record warm water, so any storm that does form has the potential to be explosive growth, rapid intensification, and very damaging. There's been one hurricane in the Atlantic so far this year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. A Boston doctor is accused of performing a lewd act on an airplane while seated next to a minor. Dr. Sudipta Mohanty was released on conditions following an initial appearance in federal court in Boston today. Prosecutors say he exposed himself in view of a 14-year-old girl while on a flight from Honolulu to Boston last year. It's 534. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Symbiosis Learning Center in Milton. Now enrolling for the upcoming year. A nurturing and mindful environment for middle and high school students. SymbiosisLearningCenter.com. We'll have some showers and thunderstorms tonight, maybe some gusty winds and heavy rain. It'll be in the upper 60s. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at AlignProbiotics.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Gasoline and groceries got more expensive last month, but the price of most other goods was down. That is encouraging hopes that the Federal Reserve may be able to bring inflation under control without tipping the economy into recession. The stock market rallied after today's cost of living report from the Labor Department. The Dow Jones Industrial Average jumped more than 400 points this morning, then gave up most of those gains today unfolded. We're going to talk through all this with NPR's Scott Horsley. Hi, Scott. Hi. And NPR's David Gura. Hey there, David. Hey, Mary Louise. Okay, Scott, you kick us off. The headline of this report today was a modest rise in inflation last month, but I guess the details were more encouraging? That's right. Annual inflation did rise last month. For the first time in a year, it was 3.2% in July, up from 3% the month before. But you shouldn't read that as inflation picking up steam. Uh, It's kind of a mathematical illusion caused by one very low monthly reading last summer that's now dropped out of the calculation. Inflation has actually been cooling off in recent months. Uh, And in fact, if you look just at the last three months, 
Prices are going up at an annual rate of just under 2%, and some prices are actually coming down. Well, you say that, but I was at my local Safeway grocery store last weekend, and it sure didn't feel like that. Which prices are going down? Yeah, gas and groceries are getting more expensive, but goods overall are getting cheaper. We saw a sharp drop in the price of used cars last month, and we expect those to keep on falling. Airfares dropped more than 8% in July for the second month in a row. Uh, I booked a flight home to Colorado in early July and was pleasantly surprised by the low fare. I'm going to jump in here to say I, I noticed that back in June, Scott, when I bought tickets to Maine, and I got to admit I was pretty taken aback by it. Yeah, rents are still going up, but not as fast as they had been. And we've also seen some moderation in the price of services, like you know, getting your car repaired or going to the dentist. Service prices are largely driven by wages, so they tend to be stickier than other prices. Mm-hmm. The big question is whether service inflation will come down enough to bring overall inflation under control, especially if goods prices start to level off or even go up again. Another big question, David, is um, what the markets are going to do with all this. It looks like Wall Street liked this report today. Yeah, the reaction was pretty positive. Uh, these inflation numbers were really in line with what Wall Street expected and what Wall Street wanted to see. Stephen Juno is an economist at Bank of America. And he told me that even though inflation is still above the Fed's target of 2%, he's happy with its trajectory. I think the direction of travel right now is really moving in the right direction and is encouraging uh, on the inflation front. So looking at markets, you know, after the government released these data, futures moved higher. Stocks jumped right out of the gate right after the opening bell about an hour later. And yes, as the day went on, markets lost some of the ground they gained. But all three indexes ended the day higher. And Wall Street is hopeful the Fed will be able to manage to pull off what you mentioned at the top, Mary Louise, that soft landing. Mm -hmm. And this inflation report made investors feel more confident the Fed will be able to get inflation under control without causing a downturn. And it made them confident the Fed is going to be happy enough with the progress it's made to, uh, to stop raising rates. Well, Scott, you're the Fed expert here. Is that what you're expecting the Fed to do? Stop raising rates after all of these raising of the rates? You know, even before this uh, inflation news today, markets were betting the Fed would leave interest rates unchanged, and odds makers now see that as even more likely. We've actually been hearing mixed messages from Fed officials in recent days. Some have said they think more rate hikes may be needed. Others say they're ready to stand pat. Wall Street is going to pay attention to this big conference that's coming up of economists and central bankers at the end of August. It's in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And Maybe Jay Powell will, I don't know, Scott, tip his hand a little bit more than he did after the last Fed meeting? You know, a year ago, Powell used a speech at Jackson Hole to deliver some tough medicine. He promised the Fed would uh, continue to raise interest rates and keep at it as long as necessary to bring inflation down. Assuming Powell does head for the Tetons this year, I think he'll be more guarded. Uh, The Fed chairman, like most of his colleagues, wants to keep his options open. And we are going to get another uh, monthly price check before the Fed's next interest rate decision in late September. The good news so far is the economy and especially the job market have weathered the Fed's rate hikes in pretty good shape. Ironically, it's the growing confidence in a soft landing that's one reason oil prices have been creeping up. And of course, that's a factor driving prices at the pump higher. Yeah, at the gas pump. Okay, so so many cross currents here, David. Are you seeing any red flags? Yeah, there are plenty of things that could go wrong and markets have been volatile. I mean, just a few months ago, we had those three big bank failures. We're still seeing the fallout from that. This week, Moody's downgraded almost a dozen regional banks. And beyond that, there are, there are warning signs about the economy in China. President Biden just signed that executive order restricting some U.S. investment there. On the plus side, we have now had several months in a row in which wage gains were outpacing inflation. So workers have seen their real purchasing power increase. 
On the negative side, a lot of those purchases are being made with plastic. Uh, this week, the New York Fed reported that credit card balances topped a trillion dollars in June for the first time ever. Not a big deal if you pay it off every month, but for those who carry a balance from month to month, that's very expensive debt with the average interest rate on credit cards topping 20%. David, you get the last word. How are markets going to sort all this out? So we saw that pop today in stocks. And if we step back, stocks are up year to date pretty significantly. The Nasdaq by more than 30%, the S&P 500 by almost 17%. And I got to mention bonds because yields are still high. Mm -hmm. That is putting a lid on the economy. It's making it more expensive to borrow. The rate on a 30-year fixed rate mortgage is almost 7% now, Mary Louise. Again, what will be critical are the economic data. If past is prologue, we will see more gains if those data keep pointing to a soft landing. Our economic gurus, David Gura and Scott Horsley. Thanks to you both. Thank you. The musician Rodriguez has died at age 81, a long life by any standard, but especially for his most passionate fans who once thought he died decades ago. Everyone knew his songs, everyone knew his albums, and everyone knew that Rodriguez was completely dead. That is film director Malik Benjalul talking with NPR Scott Simon in 2012. There is one story that he shot himself then on stage. Then there's another story that he OD'd, and that's how he died. None of these stories were true. You see, Rodriguez, whose full name was Sixto Diaz Rodriguez, was alive and well living in Detroit when those rumors were swirling. But unknown to him, he was a superstar in South Africa. The mayor hides a crime rate. Councilwoman hesitates. Rodriguez put out his debut album in 1970. At the time, his lyrics were compared to Bob Dylan, his voice to James Taylor. His music career didn't take off in the States, though. Eventually, he hung up his guitar and started doing demolition and construction work instead. But in the Southern Hemisphere, his anti-establishment songs caught on, especially among white South Africans against apartheid. No one knows exactly how the album came, but when it came, it just spread. Now, it's not clear how the rumors about his death came to be either. And after 30 years, two detectives in South Africa, like music journalists, who say there are different stories. Which story is the true one? And they found the producer, and they call him, and they are like full of questions. And the most important thing, how did he die? And he says, no, I saw Rodriguez this morning. He's, he's living down the street. Benjalul's 2012 film about Rodriguez's rediscovery called Searching for Sugar Man, it won an Oscar. It followed Rodriguez as he went to South Africa to tour, finally face-to-face with the fans who thought they would never see him perform. Afterward, Rodriguez told NPR that it was a privilege. It's a dream come true, and it's uh, and who would have thought? Sixto Rodriguez died Tuesday, actually. His official website announced his death, but did not provide a cause. Sugar man, won't you hurry? Cause I'm tired. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The four astronauts heading to the moon have met the spacecraft that will get them there. The three NASA astronauts and one Canadian are set to launch to the moon on a flyby mission at the end of next year, part of NASA's new moon program called Artemis. From member station WMFE, Brendan Byrne reports the Artemis program represents a turning point in both where NASA is heading and how it's getting there. At the Operations and Checkout Building at Kennedy Space Center in Florida, the crew of Artemis II stand in front of the Orion spacecraft, the capsule that will take them more than a quarter of a million miles from home 
to a place no human has been in more than half a century. I mean, uh, looking at this beautiful spacecraft, it's amazing how much hard work has gone into it and the, the attention to detail just makes it uh, very clear that they're focused on getting us there, but most important, back safely. NASA's Victor Glover is piloting the Artemis II mission, along with Commander Reed Wiseman and mission specialists Christina Cook and Canada's Jeremy Hansen. Their spacecraft sits in a massive building along with two more capsules that are also being readied for future missions to the lunar surface. The operation is run by Orion's prime contractor, Lockheed Martin. Lockheed Martin is a commercial company, right? They're making a spacecraft for NASA. Once they're done, they'll hand it over to NASA and then NASA will take over the rest of the flight. Douglas Leinhardt is a supply chain leader for the agency. He says that's basically the same blueprint as the agency's Apollo moon missions, which took astronauts to the moon in the 1960s and 70s. For Artemis, Lockheed is building the capsule and Boeing is developing the core stage of the rocket that will get it into space. So that's the classic NASA old, old school way of doing things. The new way is the lunar lander. The lunar lander set to fly with the Artemis 3 mission will be built on a very different model. NASA won't own that lander. Instead, the agency is asking a commercial partner for a ride to the surface. It's like calling a lunar Uber instead of buying your own moon buggy. The paradigm shift started with the George W. Bush administration as it planned for the future of NASA after the retirement of the space shuttle program, which took astronauts to space for three decades, says University of Central Florida history professor Amy Foster. It was a great program, but it was still flying with, in many ways, 1980s technology. It was time for it to go. Through the Obama and Trump administrations, NASA worked to develop its commercial cargo and crew programs, relying on commercial companies to deliver services, supplies, and, in 2020, astronauts to the International Space Station. And now the Artemis program is using that model. It is paying off, says NASA's Douglas Leinhardt. If it makes sense to the government to go the commercial route, we're going to do that because it saves the taxpayers money. And that's, you know, if, if we can do, if we can go to the moon cheaper, we're going to do it cheaper, you know. This public-private partnership isn't without risks. NASA's ride to the lunar surface, SpaceX's Starship, is grounded by the FAA after a test flight in April exploded shortly after liftoff. NASA leaders have said the development delay could alter plans for Artemis III, potentially pushing plans to return humans to the surface of the moon by 2025. But other aspects of the partnership are flourishing. SpaceX and NASA are set to launch another four people to the space station later this month, and Boeing is working to develop its own commercial vehicle to launch humans. Artemis II Commander Reed Wiseman says when visiting Florida and the Kennedy Space Center, that partnership is hard to miss as commercial rockets take flight at a rate never before seen on the Space Coast. That is really a great testament to the trajectory that we have set with the entire private-public partnership of space. And that partnership continues to grow beyond Earth. NASA is relying on commercial companies to help establish a permanent presence on the lunar surface. For NPR News, I'm Brendan Byrne at the Kennedy Space Center. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. And you're listening to 90.9 WBUR. Coming up just after the top of the hour, climate change and the Maui wildfire. And the impact of the Hollywood writers and actors strike on TV and film production workers around the country. Tonight we'll have rain, some of it heavy, likely some thunderstorms too, temps in the upper 60s. Things will clear out for a sunny Friday. Tomorrow's high will be in the low 80s. Mid-80s on Saturday with lots of sunshine. Sunday should be partly sunny, around 85 degrees, but there's a chance of showers and thunderstorms. It's 77 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing businesses with cyber threat security designed to keep devices protected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. And Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. It's time for another Beach Book recommendation from WBUR. Here's Hannah Ali. The Half of It by Juliet Fay is a modern novel about long-lost love and heartbreak. 58-year-old Helen Spencer is staying with her daughter's family in the fictional town of Belham, Massachusetts, following the deaths of her husband and elderly mother. But when she bumps into a familiar face from high school, their conversations reopen old wounds Helen had been ignoring. In the half of it, Faye navigates complicated emotions like regret, forgiveness, and grief in a way that feels authentic. If you're looking for a slow burn, slow like a 40-year-long love story, the half of it is all of it. To get weekly book recommendations just like this sent straight to your inbox, subscribe to our free newsletter at wbur.org slash beachbooks. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lynn Jolliker, in for Lisa Mullins. City leaders in Boston are celebrating the approval of a major permit that could allow them to move forward with rebuilding the bridge to Long Island in Boston Harbor. They say it's the first step toward creating a so-called recovery campus on the island for people struggling with homelessness, addiction, and mental health issues. Former Mayor Marty Walsh shut down the bridge in 2014 because it was unsafe. And the mayor of Quincy says he'll keep fighting to block the new one. WBUR's Deborah Becker has been following this story and joins us now. Hi, Deb. Hi, Lynn. Well, first, let's talk about the permit that was one of the big hurdles to getting the bridge built. What exactly is this permit? So the state approved what's called a Chapter 91 license, which Boston Mayor Michelle Wu said at a press briefing this morning is good news for the city. We are now taking this as a sign that the city will move ahead with the reconstruction of the Long Island Bridge. And Lynn, the mayor said there are still two federal permits required, and they expect those processes to be completed by the end of this year, with the bridge expected to then reopen in about four years. And if the bridge does indeed get rebuilt, as city leaders are hoping, will services be available immediately on the island? Well, there will likely be some services, but officials say most services would be phased in after the bridge reopens. They say the goal is to develop what the mayor calls a 35-acre regional public health campus that would eventually service several hundred people struggling with homelessness, addiction, and mental health issues. And Boston Public Health Commissioner Dr. Bazola Ojakutu said that would mean long-term care. That includes mental health treatment, housing, and workforce development. And she says it would be integrated and better than the services that were shuttered on Long Island when the bridge was shut down in 2014. Let's listen. The new Long Island campus will be a hub for innovation and will provide an integrated continuum of care that I believe, and I think we all believe, will strengthen our system to promote health and well-being for people who inhabit the campus. And Dr. Ojakutu says right now, with the opioid overdose death rate in Boston up 36 percent since 2019, the city's facing a crisis. She said that, quote, overwhelms our system of care. Uh, She also says too many people go into short-term treatment or detox, and because there is no coordination of services, they never really get into long-term recovery. 
And Deb, Quincy officials have been fighting this pretty vocally. Are they planning to appeal? They're still vocal. And uh, Quincy Mayor uh, Thomas Koch said his legal team is drafting an appeal. He says Boston should be looking at ferry service to the island instead. I'm going to do everything in my power uh, to put roadblocks and obstacles in the way of Boston building that bridge. Historically, they have not been a good neighbor. I'm okay with the what they want to do with the island. I find it offensive that the only route they choose is by car. So, Deb, could Quincy derail Boston's plans? Well, not according to the Boston officials who spoke at the press briefing this morning. They say the appeal process could take 6 to 12 months, but they plan to still go ahead with preliminary work on rebuilding the bridge. They say there's $81 million earmarked in the city budget for the bridge, another $38 million to rehabilitate the existing buildings on Long Island, and they're working with other agencies and philanthropies for more funding. And Deb, as you've reported extensively, Boston is facing major challenges near the intersection of Mass Ave and Melnia Cass Boulevard, or Mass and Cass. It's been the epicenter of the state's opioid epidemic, where more than 100 people are now living in a tent encampment. Mayor Wu cleared the encampment from the area a year and a half ago, a little bit more than that now. Um, And because of increasing crowds and violence there, Mayor Wu last week said she was developing a new strategy for Mass and Cass. Did she talk about that today? She did. Um, She said what's clear is that the tents, there are about 50 or so right now along a stretch of Atkinson Street, uh, pose a threat to public safety. She said the city has helped more than 4,000 people from the Mass and Cass area access recovery in the past year and a half or so, including 150 people in just the past month alone. Also, more than 250 people who were staying on the streets there have been placed in housing as well. But Woosie says hundreds more people have flocked to Atkinson Street. Many of them, she says, are not seeking shelter or help, but they're predatory and engaging in violence and drug dealing. So Wu says her office is working on an ordinance where Boston police would explicitly be permitted to deal with the tents. Let's listen. That would empower the Boston police to have clear authority and ability to help manage what our public health outreach teams are asking for. And Wu says her new strategy should be outlined in the coming weeks. WBUR's Deborah Becker, thanks for bringing us the latest. You're welcome. A former curator is suing senior leaders of the Worcester Art Museum. She accuses her supervisor and the museum's director of discrimination. WBUR's Cristela Guerra has more. In a 64-page lawsuit filed in Worcester County Superior Court, Rachel Parikh alleges she was mocked and ridiculed because she is a brown-skinned South Asian Indian woman and subjected to a hostile and offensive work environment. She resigned from her job as associate curator of the Museum's Arts of Asia and the Islamic World last fall. Day-to-day was incredibly difficult because I was constantly on edge. I was just waiting for a comment to be made or something to happen, and you're constantly on overdrive, so to speak. Her lawsuit, filed last month, details events that allegedly occurred at work and outside the museum. Parikh alleges that executive director Matthias Vashek and his husband asked intrusive questions about her cultural heritage and imitated an Indian accent when discussing a television show. She also claims her supervisor, Claire Whitner, told her to dress up and to wear makeup to, quote, look like a curator. Parikh also alleges she was overlooked for a promotion. 
Parikh's attorney, Lana Sullivan, says this is the second lawsuit her firm has filed against the museum and Vashak. Well, sadly, it appears that nothing's changed since the earlier lawsuit was brought. The same individuals are largely involved in this. It does not feel as though the museum got the message that it is required by law to maintain a working environment free of discrimination and retaliation. The previous case filed in 2015 was settled, Sullivan says. Prior to Parikh's resignation, the museum hired a third party to investigate her concerns. They found Parikh's claims to be largely credible, though no other colleagues would corroborate her accounts. You know, the environment can make you come to the realization when you look around that you are the only one that identifies as a POC. In a statement, Vashek called the allegations, quote, patently false and staggering. A museum spokesperson said via email that, quote, the organization remains committed to providing a workplace where everyone is treated with dignity and respect and looks forward to addressing these claims through the legal process. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Cristela Guerra. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Viking, dedicated to bringing travelers to the heart of each destination by river and ocean, offering programs designed for cultural enrichment and immersive experiences on board and on shore. Viking.com. From UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com slash NPR. And from USPS with Ground Advantage, the new two to five day package shipping service. Ground Advantage details are at usps.com slash advantage. The United States Postal Service, delivering for America. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR coming up to City Space on Friday, August 25th. The Mortified podcast featuring true stories of teen angst told live by the adults who experience them. Tickets at WBUR.org slash events. It's 77 degrees in Boston coming up to 6 o'clock. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org slash rentals. I'm here and now executive producer Carlene Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. As a wildfire devastates parts of Maui and leaves dozens of people dead, climate scientists in Hawaii stress the role climate change is playing in the destruction. It's Thursday, August 10th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered.
Good evening. I'm Lynn Jolliker, in for Lisa Mullins. Film and television workers around the country are taking a hit in the wake of the writers and actors strike in Hollywood. It's devastating to this industry because it trickles down. The amount of money lost is tremendous. And ahead on Marketplace, companies in the financial services sector are already using AI to make life easier for financial planners. You can ask it to summarize the latest earnings call. You can ask it how many iPhones were sold. But are customers interested? It's 6.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The Biden administration is asking Congress to approve $40 billion in additional emergency funding, including $24 billion for Ukraine and international needs. NPR's Franco Ordonez says the request is likely to set up a showdown in Congress. The Ukraine funding includes $9.5 billion in equipment and $7.3 billion for economic, humanitarian, and security assistance. Another $200 million would be directed to countering the Wagner Group and other Russian mercenary actors operating in Africa. Republican leaders in the House have voiced opposition to providing additional funding for Ukraine, but the White House has expressed confidence that an agreement can be reached. The emergency funding request also includes money for work along the southern border, including shelter and counter-fentanyl activities. It also includes money for combating floods, wildfires, and other natural disasters. Franco Ordonez, NPR News. The search continues in Hawaii for additional victims of a fast-moving wildfire that has left a wasteland of burned-out homes and obliterated communities on the island of Maui. The fire has now claimed at least 36 lives, with concerns the death toll there could go even higher as crews continue to search for additional victims. Some tourists, like Julie Ramsey, have been stuck in their cars for the past 36 hours, unable to return to where they're staying, though she notes it could have been so much worse. We should be the least of everybody's concerns because there's people who have lost homes, lost lives. So um, we just appreciate anything that they can do for us, but we're just praying for the people of Lahaina and for the people that have lost everything. The fires fueled by a dry summer and strong winds from a passing hurricane will go down as the deadliest in the U.S. in recent years. The U.S. Supreme Court has temporarily blocked a $6 billion bankruptcy deal involving Purdue Pharma, the maker of OxyContin, and members of the Sackler family who own the company. Justice is agreeing to review the controversial case, which lies at the heart of the opioid crisis. NPR's Brian Mann reports. A federal bankruptcy court first approved a deal involving Purdue Pharma in 2021 that also included wealthy members of the Sackler family, even though they're not bankrupt. In exchange for a $6 billion payment, the deal blocked future opioid lawsuits against the Sacklers. A division of the Justice Department appealed that provision, and the Supreme Court has now agreed to review this case in December. Meanwhile, implementation of the settlement will be on hold, which means billions of dollars won't be dispersed to communities and opioid victims. Legal experts say this case could set precedents affecting other controversial bankruptcy deals involving companies and wealthy individuals. Brian Mann, NPR News. Inflation after 12 straight months of declines edged up slightly in July. Though stripping up volatile food and energy costs, prices were relatively well contained. Government says the consumer price index rose 3.2 percent last month compared to the same period a year ago. Stocks gained ground on Wall Street today. The Dow closed up 52 points. This is NPR. 
And you're listening to 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. A local advocacy group is raising concerns about the aging prison population in Massachusetts. There were 195 incarcerated people who were 60 or older at the start of last year, according to the state. At that time, more than 550 people in Massachusetts prisons were in their 50s. Northampton-based Prison Policy Initiative says that could lead to higher health care costs as people in prison age. The mayor of Quincy is vowing to appeal the state's decision to give Boston a license to rebuild the Long Island Bridge. Mayor Tom Koch says traffic that will have to go through Quincy's Squantum neighborhood will have a negative environmental impact on residents. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu says with the state's latest approval, the city can move forward on rebuilding a campus on Long Island in Boston Harbor to help people who are dealing with addiction and homelessness. She says it can be done in four years. We can't waste any more time in this project. It is about creating an island of opportunity that will connect people to the lives and uh, community and, and pathways that they deserve. The city still has to obtain two federal permits. The old bridge was unsafe and was demolished eight years ago. The loss of the campus has put a strain on Boston's ability to help people with substance use disorder. A New Hampshire woman and her child are healthy and were not harmed during their recent kidnapping ordeal in Haiti. That's according to the aid organization where the woman worked. Alex Dorsonville and her young daughter were abducted late last month in a gang-controlled area of Haiti's capital, Port-au-Prince. They were freed on Tuesday. Well, a busy night in sports locally, the Patriots kick off their preseason as they host the Houston Texans. The Red Sox face Kansas City at Fenway, and Canton's Little League team takes on Maine in the regional final. The winner moves on to the Little League World Series in Williamsport, Pennsylvania, next week. Looks like summer storms will return tonight, thunderstorms and possibly heavy rain. The low will be in the upper 60s. Right now it's 75 degrees in Boston with light rain. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure the future of Africa's wildlife and wild lands. Learn more at awf.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Much of Lahaina on the island of Maui is in ruins. My business, my home, my inventory, everything I own is gone. I'm lucky enough that my dog is alive, I'm alive, I have a vehicle, um, and I have a lot of friends accounted for with me, but I have a lot of friends who aren't accounted for. That's Cole Millington. He owns Honolulu Hot Sauce Company, which is based in Lahaina. He says everything happened so fast for him. I just looked out my window and I saw a huge black plume of smoke pretty close to our house, and within 15 minutes we were sprinting into our cars, peeling out of the driveway, and the road was on fire. At least three dozen people have died. Hundreds of buildings have been destroyed. Many are still having trouble reaching their loved ones. It's very um, obviously traumatic to see such a historic town, just to see it scorched and gray and still burning and the smoke. And it was very apocalyptic. That's Dr. Reza Donish. He's been driving around in a medical van, treating people who are still in Lahaina. And while he's been treating them, they have been sharing stories of survival. One guy that rescued himself said he felt the walls being hot and then he knew not to open his front door. So he propelled down three stories with a rope he had and, and just started running to the ocean. Dr. Donish says that patient is not the only one who sought refuge in the ocean. This other lady were treating all her cuts and all her injuries told me she spent 
eight hours in the water. She just ran to the ocean. Um, and she go like, hold on to a pillar. And she's telling me how her friend had a smoke inhalation and was having a hard time and, and her friend couldn't survive. And just to hear that story, to kind of like, kind of some kind of like Titanic like story to just watch someone in the water and it's your friend die. Um, her pet died and she had nothing. And we were treating her and she was keeping her spirits up but to just realize that happened right here, a few miles from where we live. It just seems unfair. The devastation from the fires has been swift and vast. Satellite images of Lahaina taken yesterday show large swaths of Maui that have been completely leveled. These wildfires are already raising questions about what role climate change may be playing. Questions we're going to put now to Giuseppe Torri. He's a professor of atmospheric sciences at the University of Hawaii. We have reached him in Honolulu. Professor, welcome. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So just yesterday, I was interviewing someone live from Hawaii on this program And six people were confirmed dead. Overnight, that number jumped. The death toll is now in the dozens. There's also devastation that is looking much worse than it was just 24 hours ago. So start there. How did this fire get so big, so deadly, so fast? There are two components to this. The first one is that we are in a dry season in Hawaii. It hasn't rained a lot. Um, Summers are typically dry. And we are in a period uh, of El Nino, meaning that the Pacific Ocean is warmer. And uh, warmer waters in the Pacific Ocean uh, typically bring drier conditions in Hawaii. Uh, And so these two things summed together caused fairly dry conditions on the islands for the past few weeks. On top of this, we had to the north of the island, there was a pretty strong high pressure system. And to the south of the island, we had a tropical cyclone. Tropical cyclones have low pressures, and so high pressure to the north, uh, low pressure to the south caused great acceleration in the winds. Okay, so you're talking about winds, you're talking about dry conditions. I, I mean, I will note it's not just dry this summer, it's been dry for years. Hawaii has been experiencing drought for more than a decade. Was this a case where you had existing conditions in place and then weather patterns that combined in just the wrong way? Um, for a fire like this to be possible. That is correct, yes. Conditions were there and um, and the wind was sort of the trigger. Is this just Maui or are other parts of Hawaii vulnerable in the same way? I would say all of the Hawaiian islands are equally vulnerable. Uh, wildfires in general, are they're not so rare in Hawaii. And so there have been uh, occasions in Maui and, and Hawaii Island in the past. But these tend to be pretty limited in spatial extent and certainly not with the same uh, amount of damages that we've seen. Yeah. I mean, the images coming out of Hawaii are, are shocking. Um, are they surprising, knowing everything we know about the environmental conditions you're describing and the atmospheric conditions? No, I, I don't think they're surprising at all. And in, in fact, this was a topic of conversation with uh, friends in the past few days because, you know, we're just saying, well, um, El Nino, uh, (laughs) dry conditions, you know, we were expecting tropical cyclones, hurricanes during the season, and we were just talking about the possibility of of there being wildfires. Certainly, we didn't expect the impact that they had on Lahaina. This is the town that's that's basically burnt to the ground, or at least it appears to be from images. Go on. Yeah, this beautiful historic town, uh, completely burned. Um, we didn't expect that, um, that's for sure. But 
Um, but it wasn't too surprising that there would be that there would be wildfires. Yeah. Is this climate change? To what extent is that factoring in here? So, I would say there are different components to this. To some degree, this is part of the natural variability of the climate. Uh, we do, however, observe there have been considerable drying over the Hawaiian Islands, particularly on the leeward side. And this is consistent with what um, some of the models project for uh, future climates. Um, and I would also add a third component, which is that climate change doesn't only mean uh, the change due to greenhouse gas concentrations uh, have an increase over the past 150 years. Mm-hmm. Climate change is also due to how we change the environment in which we live. And Hawaii has certainly experienced dramatic changes over the last, I would say, 50 to 100 years in terms of urbanization, in terms of land use and land cover change. Um, a lot of the land has been converted from, you know, just wild land, been converted to agricultural land, uh, to various crops. The way we use the natural resources can have an impact, perhaps not on a global scale, but maybe on a regional enough scale to become important for these uh, for these changes to occur. So what's the number one question on your mind, top thing you're watching for in the coming days? Well, first of all, what is the Pacific Ocean going to do uh, over the next few months? Uh, what is it going to do next year? Uh, are we still going to be in a in a El Nino year, I guess? And the Pacific Ocean is, uh, is a giant heart uh, for the planet Earth. And what the Pacific Ocean is doing has effects pretty much everywhere. And it's particularly true in Hawaii, which is in the center of this beautiful ocean. Uh, and so the number one question is, how can we better predict the behavior of this part of the globe, which is not as inhabited as other continental areas, but which from the climate point of view is extraordinarily important. And the second question, um, which is not necessarily my uh, my field, is how can we be better prepared in the future? Because, you know, if this keeps happening and these events keep happening, how can we be um, better prepared moving forward? That is Giuseppe Torre, Professor of Atmospheric Sciences at the University of Hawaii. Professor Torre, thank you. Thank you very much. Hollywood writers have been striking for three months, and last month, the actors joined them. Together, they've been filling up picket lines outside the major studios in Hollywood. But the strikes aren't only having an impact in California. Outside of the state, the industry says it employs more than 1.7 million people and pays $158 billion in wages. NPR's Tilda Wilson talked to some of them. It would be difficult to film a show called Yellowstone anywhere other than the Mountain West. You were right. They're building a city. Everyone's forgotten who runs this valley. Yellowstone's later seasons were filmed in Montana, where film and TV productions paid $121 million in wages last year. After Yellowstone completed production, casting director Tina Buckingham was already hard at work on a prequel for the show called 1923. It was set to begin filming in Montana in June until the writer's strike started. She says this and other cancellations have been hard for businesses across the state. It's devastating to this industry because it trickles down all of the food people, the restaurants, the people that would work on the movie, the lumber companies for building sets, the wranglers for the horses, and it goes on and on and on. The amount of money lost is tremendous. Still, Buckingham says she stands with the striking writers and actors. I believe in it. The writers and the actors 
both absolutely need a better cut for projects when they go to streaming. Montana attracts big productions with its scenery, but Georgia draws in even more with tax credits. The Motion Picture Association estimates the film and TV industry brought in $3.5 billion in wages last year in Georgia for productions that included popular shows like Sweet Magnolias and Single Drunk Female. In the beginning, your body's like, don't drink, I want to drink, don't drink, I want to drink. What do I do? Don't drink. No. Brian Smith works as a set dresser in Atlanta. He's in a union, but not one of the ones that's striking. Smith said picketers didn't show up at their productions right at the start of the WGA strike the way they did in Hollywood. We were never really hit with picketers, so a lot of filming continued to happen in Atlanta. But work dried up really quickly as the strike continued into the summer. It's been hard for him. I missed my job. <laughs> it's, it was something that I, I loved doing, so it's hard for me to just feel like, oh yeah, I'll go wait tables or I'll go do this. It's like, I don't want to do that. And I don't want to do that at all. But they're striking for people like Jay Adams, who has worked as an actor and stuntman in Michigan for more than a decade. This is about guys like me, who you don't know, but you see me in an episode of a TV show falling down and uh, getting beat up by, by somebody. The people that you don't know the names of, but those are the people that you actually see quite a bit. Adam says he didn't have to find a new side gig when the strike started because he's always needed one anyway. He hopes the strike can help change that. We're so focused on these side hustles and things like that. We want to be able to work our job and be able to train for our job when we're not working and be able to make a good living and be able to take care of our families. But as the strikes continue, it looks like more than a million people across the U.S. working in and around the production industries will have to wait. Tilda Wilson, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thanks so much for starting your evening with us here at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered next, stealthy fish and why waves are getting taller in California. We'll have a roundup of current science news. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo. The Massachusetts sales tax-free weekend is this weekend. Shades, blinds, shutters, and drapery at Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com. And the Cape Playhouse in Dennis Village. Now playing George and Ira Gershwin's An American in Paris. Up next, Lerner and Lowe's musical Camelot. Tickets at kateplayhouse.com. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. On Wall Street, just some slight gains today. The Dow went up almost 0.2 percent. The S&P inched up 0.03 percent. NASDAQ gained 0.1 percent. In local business news, inflation in greater Boston is lower than it is nationally. The consumer prices released today show a 2.8 percent increase locally compared to 3.2 percent nationwide. Analysts attribute that to falling energy prices here. The U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics reports household energy prices were lower in the Boston area, though gasoline, food, and housing prices were up. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Prompt, with a mission to help students get into their top-choice colleges. Prompt's one-on-one application and essay coaching is designed to help students write compelling college essays. More at myprompt.com NPR. 
The Supreme Court has temporarily blocked a bankruptcy deal involving Purdue Pharma, the maker of OxyContin, and members of the Sackler family who own the company. We're following this developing story. Join us again as you wake up tomorrow here on 90.9 WBUR. We'll have some showers and thunderstorms tonight. It'll be in the upper 60s. Tomorrow will clear out to be sunny and hot, temps in the low 80s. Saturday looks like the pick of the weekend in the mid-80s with more sunshine. We might see some showers and thunderstorms Sunday. Otherwise, it'll be partly sunny with temps around 85 again. Then Monday, it looks like the sun will stick around. It'll be in the low to mid-80s on Monday. Right now, it's 75 degrees in Boston. We have overcast skies. This is WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. It's time now for our science roundup from our friends at NPR's shortwave podcast. Regina Barber and Burley McCoy are here. Hey, y'all. Hey. Hello. All right. So today, I understand you've brought us three science stories that caught your eye. Can you just give me a little preview? Okay. How about shouting into interstellar space? A super sneaky fish. And bigger waves off California because of climate change. Okay, Regina, I can definitely identify with this idea of shouting into space a lot of the time, especially when I'm at home. Let's start there. Yeah, me too. So a couple weeks ago, NASA lost contact with Voyager 2. This is the spacecraft that launched in 1977 and has traveled well beyond our solar system and is still sending back data. And they were worried they'd lost contact for good, but they reconnected to it last week by shouting at it across 12 billion miles or so. Okay, and what exactly do you mean by shouting? Yeah, so NASA periodically sends messages to make sure Voyager 2 is pointing its receiver towards Earth. And a few weeks ago, there was an error in a code that was sent out that resulted in the receiver pointing the wrong way, just two degrees. And that error was kind of like sending an email with the wrong attachment. And because of that slight shift, they lost contact. The team was in emergency mode. But they were eventually able to send another message using the strongest signal they could, which was over twice as powerful as the original message. Linda Spilker, the Voyager mission scientist I talked to, called it shouting at Voyager 2. And it worked. We shouted Voyager, waited a day and a half, and Voyager came back and said, hi, I'm fine. Everything's great. (laughs) Well, that sounds like a relief. But wait, there are two Voyager spacecrafts, right? Yeah, so there's Voyager 1 and Voyager 2, and they were both made to study the planets in our solar system. And Voyager 2 is actually the only spacecraft to study Uranus and Neptune. But since everything was still working after the initial four-year mission, scientists decided to give them a new mission to study interstellar space. Interstellar? Isn't that a Matthew McConaughey film? Yes, but in real life, we're talking about the space beyond our solar system, between star systems, a place we haven't really explored. And that's where the Voyager spacecrafts are now. And this makes them the farthest human-made objects from Earth. Also, just in case they encounter intelligent life, Voyager 1 and 2 are carrying golden records. And these golden records have images, music, and greetings from all over the world. Okay, now for our second science story, we are leaving space and we're diving right into the ocean. Burley, tell us about these sneaky fish. Yeah, so this discovery is in trumpet fish, which are these long stick-like fish. And they do this thing called shadowing when they're hunting other fish, which is basically when one fish follows another fish closely. And there was some mystery as to why they would do that. 
Maybe they do it because it helps them sneak up on their prey, but they could also do it because they encounter less drag when they swim in the shadow of another fish. Researchers didn't really know. Okay, so how did the scientists get to the bottom of it all? So this is the really fun part. First, the researchers made these 3D printed models of trumpet fish and the fish they tend to hide behind called parrotfish. Then the lead researcher spent weeks painting them. He said he felt like Bob Ross and then took them out to a coral reef in the Caribbean where divers had seen this trumpet fish shadowing behavior before. And so two researchers would dive down, find a colony of trumpet fish prey, and then set up two tripods with a nylon line between them. They attached 3D printed trumpet fish and parrotfish to that nylon line, kind of like an underwater clothesline. And then they'd put on this underwater puppet show with the fake fish swimming across the reef and watch how the trumpet fish's prey responded. Okay, so what did the prey do? How did they respond to these decoys when it looked like one fish was hiding behind the other fish? Yeah, so this illusion that the researchers set up with the fake trumpet fish hiding behind the parrotfish, it seemed to trick the prey. The prey didn't dart out of the way as urgently as they did when they encountered the trumpet fish on its own. So it seems these scientists got closer to answering the question of why these fish do this then, right? It seems to help them get closer to their prey while hunting. Yeah, that's what the researchers concluded, which means this is the first time researchers showed that a predator outside of humans can conceal themselves from their prey by hiding behind another animal. And since coral reefs are disappearing, there's less coral to hide behind. So hiding behind other fish could end up being an even more important strategy for trumpet fish in the future. For our third and final story, we are staying in the ocean. The waves along the California coast are getting bigger over time, and that's due to global warming? Yeah, so our NPR colleague Nate Rott wrote about this recently for NPR.org. Apparently, California's winter waves have gotten about a foot taller on average since 1969. And the number of storms that produce waves greater than 13 feet tall have also become more common off California's coast. So this is from a study published last week in the Journal of Geophysical Research Oceans. I mean, when you're talking about a foot taller waves, I'm not the best swimmer. That doesn't sound like good news for me. Maybe if you like to surf, it's a good thing. Yeah, I think for surfers, it might be a better thing than for the rest of us. Surfers in California earlier this year actually said they saw the best swell in decades. Yeah, but like Juana said, there are plenty of downsides that come with massive waves like damaged piers, crumbled sea cliffs, flooded coastlines. And when you combine that with rising sea levels, we're talking billions in damage to California's coast within the next few decades. Okay, that's no good. So how did they figure out that California's waves were getting bigger? Peter Bromirsky, the study's author, used seismic records going back to 1931. I mean, I feel like when I hear the word seismic thrown around, I'm usually thinking about earthquakes, not waves. Yep, yep, totally. But it is connected, we swear. So... Basically, when waves ricochet off the coast, they send energy back towards the sea. And when that energy hits incoming waves, it pushes energy downward. That creates a seismic signal that can be detected, like earthquakes. So Bromirsky was able to use that information to estimate the size of the waves. And this part is actually really cool. So we have data on wave height along the West Coast from buoys, but they've only been measuring this since 1980. So by using this older seismic data, Bromirsky was able to go back further in time to activity patterns back to the 1930s. Okay, and we mentioned earlier that these higher waves off California are linked to global warming. What's the connection? 
Well, this new study adds to research suggesting storm activity in the northern Pacific Ocean has increased as human activities have caused the world's temperatures to warm. That storm activity is the main source of California's winter swells. Plus, we know that climate change makes storms more powerful and dangerous. It makes storm surge and inland flooding more severe. So even though this study was focused on a specific region, the concern goes way beyond the California coast. That's Burley McCoy and Regina Barber from NPR's science podcast, Shortwave, where you can learn about new discoveries, everyday mysteries, and the science behind the headlines. Regina, Burley, thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Juana. This is NPR News. And we're glad you're with us on 90.9 WBUR. Electro-pop singer FC headlines our last sound-on music event of the summer at WBUR City Space on Thursday, August 24th. Tickets at WBUR.org slash events. We'll have rain and maybe some thunderstorms tonight. Temps in the upper 60s. Looks like a nice Friday tomorrow. Sunny with a high in the low 80s. Mid-80s both days this weekend with lots of sun Saturday. A little less sunshine on Sunday with a chance of showers. Then right now, Monday looks sunny with a high in the mid-80s. Marketplace is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting the colorful fabric portraits of Bahamian artist Gio Swaby, opening August 12th. Learn more at PEM.org.